Welcome to the Zapiens Podcast. I'm Lloyd Waits. Today I'll be interviewing Professor Kevin Esfeldt, who leads the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab. While being most famous for the development of the CRISPR-based gene drive, Professor Esfeldt is also a very passionate and vocal speaker about preventing existential risks, such as pandemics. A lot of his thinking has been very inspirational to a lot of the conversation that I've had on this podcast, and so I'm very happy to have him on today and interview him in detail. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah. yeah. So, um, just for starters, I'm I'm familiar with some of your work, but if you could just give a, a broad overview for anyone who, who's watching, um, what you work on and what's what your interests are. Sure. So I'm Kevin Esfeldt. I run the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab, and we focus on advancing biotechnology safely. So that includes ways of harnessing evolution to create new molecular tools and platforms to catalyze the work of others. It includes developing technologies to change the shared environment, to solve ecological problems using nature's tools, and especially includes doing that in ways that are going to ensure that the technologies have the greatest likelihood of winning popular support. And the way to do that is to ensure that they're as safe as possible, which involves going to people early on saying, hey, we think we might be able to address this problem that we've heard you have, any of these different technical ways. Are you interested in any of them? And if so, which ones? And that's just very different from the typical way technology gets developed where we are too afraid of being scooped to even tell anyone what we're doing until we have the thing basically done, at which point it's really too late for anyone else to weigh in. And that's a bit of a problem because if you're intending to change the shared environment, well, people can't very well opt out of the outcomes. So you're denying them a voice in these early stage critical decisions. So we're trying to establish these norms of greater transparency and especially community guidance in work that will have widespread environmental impacts outside the lab. And then the last one is on the misuse side. How can we prepare for a world in which biotech allows many people to build exponentially spreading biological agents? Yeah, so um, there are, I know, a list of different ways that you are looking at approaching that. And I think probably the most famous piece of your work is coming out of the, the gene drive, right? Um, so can you talk about what is a gene drive? How does that work? And how, how does that affect these outcomes that you're talking about? <clears throat> yeah, so until... I suppose about a decade ago, we really couldn't use biotechnology to change the environment very much. But the most we could do is use biotech to change the domesticated animals that, and crops that then we put out there and shape the environment in other ways, typically using lots of energy and chemicals, to create a local fitness advantage. And then we would just engineer those things so that they had different traits. What we really could not do at all is engineer anything approximating a wild organism with a new trait and then have that trait persist, let alone spread on its own in the wild. In fact, it wouldn't be an overstatement to claim that we could not build fitness positive things until about a decade ago. And a decade ago, of course, is about when CRISPR came out. And one of the things I realized not too long after that is that if you edit an organism with CRISPR and you put it out there, natural selection is going to typically act against it because whatever change we made, we made it for our benefit. 
We didn't make it to assist the replication of the organism. But if you encode the CRISPR genome editing machinery next to the change that you made, and you program it to turn on in the reproductive cells of a multicellular organism, so one that makes sperm and eggs, then in organisms that inherit one engineered copy and one wild copy, CRISPR will turn on in the reproductive cells, it'll cut the wild copy, and it'll replace it with the engineered version, including the CRISPR machinery. So this means that instead of half the offspring inheriting the engineered trait, all of them will. And that's why we call this a CRISPR-based gene drive system. And the gene drive refers to the distorting inheritance to favor one particular allele over another. And there's all kinds of natural gene drive systems. Our genomes are laden with the broken remnants of ancient gene drive systems of various forms. But with CRISPR, we have the opportunity to control this and harness it for our own purposes. Of course, in most cases, you don't necessarily want to engineer the entire species. I can think of four cases where we might want to do that. For most okay. of them, you really just want to keep a lid on that and engineer only a local population. So a lot of what my group does is focus on this question of how can we reliably control the extent to which we edit a wild species. Uh, so how did you end up stumbling across this? I understand that kind of the argument of CRISPR being discovered rather than being invented as it's, it's technically a, a, a natural system. But so how did it come along that this doesn't seem like this was something that was searched for in demand. It seems like this is something that you kind of found and realized its potential later. Well, the notion of gene drive is well understood because nature discovered that right. around the time sex evolved in the first place. Ways of cheating that even distribution of inheritance pattern began to evolve. And CRISPR was first really discovered, yes. Um, I played a very minor role in developing it with uh, George Church's team at Harvard Medical School. And with gene drive, I've just always been very interested in evolution and fitness advantages. That's been a major focus of my research for other reasons. And I was just walking outside in the emerald necklace and I wondered, hey, would we ever engineer any of these critters around us with CRISPR? I saw a turtle that day, I remember, which is very unusual. You don't see a lot of turtles in the emerald necklace. And I concluded that no, we probably wouldn't because it, we'd have to raise so many of them in order to release enough to make a dent in the existing wild population of any given trait that it probably wasn't very likely that we would do that. And then I wondered, well, wait a minute. What if you encode CRISPR along with the change you want to make such that the organism will do genome editing on its own and convert the wild copy to the engineered copy? potentially every generation. And I thought, wait a minute, that's exactly what the ISK1 endonuclease gene and enzyme do in yeast. ISK1 exists at a locus that, <clears throat> that does not always contain it. And when it finds itself in a diploid yeast that has the wild type version and the ISK1 version, ISK1 endonuclease cuts the wild type version and it copies over the ISK1 gene in its place. So this is a endonuclease gene drive system. And what I was thinking, wait a minute, if I, what I just proposed was doing that exact same thing with CRISPR. And then I thought, wait a minute, aren't there people trying to engineer homing endonucleases like ISK1 
to be useful to build gene drives and like malarial mosquitoes to get rid of malaria? Because I was sure I remembered hearing something about that. And I thought, but that won't work very well because A, it's incredibly difficult to re-engineer homing endonucleases. And B, if you target just one site, what if there's a mutation in that site that blocks cutting? Any wild type organism that has a mutation, as long as that mutation is more fit than your gene drive system, then it can't be replaced by the gene drive and so it's going to outcompete it. But I thought with CRISPR, the game changes. Now you can target multiple sites such that it would have to acquire combinatorial resistance, which nature is not very good at. So here is a way that would allow us to engineer wild populations in a way that would be evolutionarily stable. And CRISPR is so versatile in targeting that you could always build another one, no matter the target sequence, instead of spending a decade trying to engineer one homing endonuclease to build something that wouldn't be a very evolutionarily stable, you just target it with CRISPR. So I was very enthused for the first day and thought about it a lot and went read up a lot on gene drive and discovered that Austin Burt had actually come up with a clever way of using a homing endonuclease to cause a population to crash. The obvious way is you can, instead of copying a single sequence of DNA at one genetic locus, what if instead you program the gene drive system to preferentially cause the inheritance of a sex chromosome? So what if, for example, in the mosquito Y chromosome, which also encodes maleness in mosquitoes just like it does in humans, what if you encode a nuclease that cuts the X chromosome, thereby ensuring that most offspring inherit the Y? They would therefore be male, and they would inherit this ability, and then you would end up having this driving Y chromosome spread through the population, turn them into males, and the population would crash. There's also another way to do it by targeting female fertility genes. So Austin Bird had worked out all of this in 2003, and in fact, he'd been trying to raise money and, and building up this organization called Target Malaria to build gene driving in mosquitoes. So I was very excited by this, and I thought, oh, it's not just malarial mosquitoes. If that works, we can directly target and crash the populations of the schistosomes that cause schistosomiasis. There's surely many other things that we could do this for. And then the next day I woke up and thought, good God, how many people are going to be able to do this? And are we going to be engineering every organism there is out there? And if you can engineer a mosquito to not carry disease, you can engineer a mosquito to carry a disease always. This seems really bad. What, how thoroughly could this be misused? And is that going to be a problem? And I sat on it for a month or so until I was pretty sure. But the answer is it's slow because it spreads over generations. It is easily detected. It's obvious if you look for it just because these organisms, sexually reproducing organisms, don't have CRISPR in their genomes. They have CRISPR in their bodies because in the, in the gut microbes and skin surface microbes, in our microbiomes there's CRISPR, but there shouldn't be DNA encoding CRISPR in the actual eukaryotic cells themselves. So if you see CRISPR in there, it's because a human put it there. So it's going to be blindingly obvious. You can't pull a fast one on anyone with this technology. So it's slow, it's obvious, and crucially, because CRISPR is so versatile, it's easily countered. That is, if one person can build a gene drive system that works in an organism, somebody else can take the exact same gene drive design, swap out the guide RNAs, change the sequences for to ones, <clears throat> sorry, let me start over. 
you can take the original gene drive that you don't like, you can remove whatever it is that causes the problem, and then you can add some extra guide RNAs that target the original version and just change the target sequences in yours so that they're no longer present. This way yours will continue to spread through the wild population just like the version you don't like. But whenever yours encounters the first gene drive version, the second one will cut it and replace it with itself. So it has all the advantages, plus it wins when the two encounter each other. And because CRISPR is so versatile, it is not possible to build a CRISPR-based gene drive system that cannot be overwritten by another one. In other words, it's inherently reversible, and it inherently favors defense, because anything that is slow, obvious, and easily blocked favors defense. Now, if you remove any one of those properties, then it no longer favors defense. But gene drive has all three. And consequently, I concluded that it was safe to tell other people. So at that point, I told George Church and said, who else can, can, can is it safe to tell about this and ensure that I'm right? Once you, you believe <laughs> to your satisfaction that my reasoning is in fact correct. I'm guessing George Church was very excited when he, when he first said this idea. Yeah, we had some good discussions. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so because this is an inherently defensive technology and has still is probably looked at very carefully, even when you're looking at crashing populations of, of mosquitoes, because even though it's a defensive technology, the, the mosquitoes aren't going to be trying to, <laughs> to re-engineer CRISPR to try and fix it. Um, what are the specific applications that you had in mind? I know you said you mentioned four. So originally it was malaria and schistosomiasis, which are still among public health scourges both rank way up there. I mean, in the time we've been talking, 10 or so kids have died of malaria. Like this is, it's, it's a scourge. And schistosomiasis actually infects even more people and causes severe growth and cognitive stunting. Doesn't kill as many, but in its own way, it's just as bad as malaria. And of course, these afflict some of the, you know, most vulnerable populations in the world. That gets into issues of access and control, of course, but we'll talk about those later. For the other two, the question is, how often do we want to edit an entire species? Get rid of malaria? Yeah. Get rid of schistosomiasis? Sure. Aren't that many eukaryotic parasitic diseases carried by one particular or narrow group of organisms. I mean, with malaria, you can't actually target, even though the malarial parasite itself is sexually reproducing, its reproductive cycle means you can't hit it with a gene drive directly. But there's a handful of mosquito species that are really efficient at spreading malaria. Vast majority of mosquitoes don't. There's 3,000-ish species of mosquitoes almost in the world, and a mere handful are very efficient at carrying malaria. So you edit or crash those, and as part of a broader eradication campaign, and that could be it, how you get rid of Plasmodium falciparum. With schistosomiasis, you can actually target the schistosomes directly and crash them and plausibly eradicate them entirely. And now you can say, oh, well, what are the ethics of that? You're driving an organism extinct. Well, I, for one, am fully in favor of driving horrific pathogens causing tremendous suffering extinct. We got rid of smallpox. That was great. We should keep doing that with the other causes of, of diseases. I don't think that every valid information string should exist. 
But for the other two, well, you don't have to get rid of something. Ideally, you want to tweak it so that it no longer causes a problem. And one of the most famous plagues and scourges in all of history, of course, were those associated with the plagues of Egypt. And the eighth biblical plague was locusts. And as it happens in the last decade or so, we have definitely had a number of locust-driven famines, particularly in Africa, to some extent in the Middle East, where these desert grasshoppers, it rains a lot in the desert unusually in one particular region, and they will sense that in the form of greater vegetation. They grow to greater numbers, they associate with one another, and that causes them to switch into gregarious mode. It's actually a stable epigenetic switch, it's heritable over a few generations. They become locusts rather than grasshoppers. And they gather into a massive swarm and blaze out of the desert and eat everything in sight. That's really, I didn't know that that was all just because of an epigenetic switch that happened within the grasshoppers. That's yeah, very they, interesting. They change color, they change behavior. It's, it's really remarkable. But we know from population genetic studies that they don't need to do that. That is, there are populations that have just stayed desert grasshoppers for a thousand years, as best we can tell. Which in turn suggests that you could switch it off. That is, you could engineer desert locusts to stay grasshoppers by breaking the switch so that they would just never change back into the locust form. And that wouldn't harm them. They would still be perfectly viable species living in the desert. They would stay desert grasshoppers all the time. And if we really wanted to, once we were no longer vulnerable to famines of that sort, we could even switch it back. So that would in a form be taming the plague of locusts. And I think that's one that should definitely be on the table for if we're going to have the hubris of considering editing a whole species, that should be on there, given the amount of historical misery they've caused and the fact that we wouldn't have to harm them. And the last one has to do with our concern over animal suffering. Now, if we ended factory farming tomorrow, that would save an awful lot of suffering. Call it an average of 100 billion animals a year, terrestrial animals, factory farmed on average over the next maybe 100-ish years, perhaps. And you're looking at 10 to the 13th animals suffering those conditions. So that's 10 to the 13th animal suffering that we could prevent. But as best I can tell, the New World screwworm, Cochleomyia hominovorax, is a bot fly that lays its eggs in open wounds. And the larvae devour the living tissue around them until they've eaten enough and then they fall out, metamorphose into flies fly off. But before they go, they cultivate bacteria that emit volatiles that summon new gravid females to lay their eggs in that wound over and over again and pry it further and further open. So you end up with this, with this macabre parade of screwworm flies and maggots in which they're both conductors and performers that results in the animal being devoured alive by flesh-eating maggots. And we know that it's excruciatingly painful because occasionally they infest humans. And the typical treatment is you give the patient morphine while you cut the maggots out because it's just that bad. And by my back of the envelope, there's about a 
billion wild animals that are parasitized by screwworm fly in South America every year. Typical insect species sticks around for several million years. There aren't any other flies that do this primary myiasis infestation where they, it's just an open wound. There's no diseased or decaying flesh that they pref preferentially eat. No, just straight up any break in the skin, they will lay their eggs and begin eating the animal. And they preferentially, in fact, they only prey upon mammals and birds, the species that we know we're most confident can suffer. And icing on the cake is that these, these flies used to exist in North America, and we already eradicated them. And there were no obvious changes to the ecosystems when we did. So the way we got rid of them before was through these combined campaigns, but the bulk of the work was done by what's called sterile insect technique, which is where you rear these flies in fly factories, but you irradiate the larva in order to sterilize them. Mm. And then you release 100 radiation-sterilized flies for every one in the wild. And then that means that the vast majority of the wild flies mate with a sterile fly, and then they don't reproduce. So we use this to push them out of Florida and then west to Texas and then down through Texas to the Mexican border. And then USDA made an agreement with Mexico to push them down through Mexico to the Mexico southern border, which is shorter, and then the, through the other countries of Central America and down to Panama which is where the border currently lies and is maintained by 10 million sterile screwworm flies released by USDA over Panama every week in a form of living wall that prevents the South American flies from reinvading. And this is one of the most cost-effective programs ever when you calculate how much damage to North American agriculture has been averted. But in South America, the flies are more entrenched. You would need something more powerful than that technique, well, a gene drive could certainly do it. And they don't exist anywhere else in the world. So if the countries there could agree to go ahead and use the full power gene drive system, we could finish the job and remove them from South America. And there, if we're queasy about causing extinction, even of, a, even of the one species that may have caused more suffering than any other, barring possibly humans, screwworm flies are interesting in that you can freeze the larvae and unfreeze them and they're perfectly alive and capable of reproducing decades later. So we don't even have to get rid of them entirely. We don't have to drive them extinct. We can just remove them from the wild and put them on ice. And then if anything emergency happened and we somehow needed them again, they would be there. I mean, I think a lot of the time people get cagey around extinction, not realizing how prevalent extinction has been throughout history right i mean in order for many species to exist now they had to go through some evolutionary change and oftentimes a lot of other species went extinct well sure almost every species that have ever has ever existed is extinct that's just how it is that said many people are very concerned about this and it is not necessarily impossible to come back from extinction anymore given sufficient technology but nevertheless it is certainly difficult and the ecosystem may have changed so that the available niche is no longer there. So a lot of people are wary of this and have deep concerns, and if you can address those concerns, then you should, right? No, none of us should ever be so certain that we're morally correct that we just dispense with somebody else's moral opinion because, heck, you can't have consistency and completeness in mathematics. What makes you think you, we have a handle on it in morality? That's a, that's a really good point. Um, so I, I guess kind of the, the 
overarching concern there is not only with extinction, but also with environmental impact. Um, and in, in the case of the, the fly, it's been shown that in North America, there was no environmental impact. And so that's why you proposed this as one of those, those four solutions. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Now, that's not to say that there wouldn't be ecological impacts in South America. Ecosystems True. are different. But again, we and others have developed these localized forms. And the major point of the localized form of gene drive is that it allows you to test the effects in a contained area. That is, you can actually run a field trial. And ecosystems are sufficiently complex that the only reliable way to figure out what would happen if you make change X is to make it in one area and observe the environment closely and see what happens. But if we were to do any such thing, of course, it would need to be driven by the relevant people who live there, who would be affected by any ecological changes and who know the environment best. And so this, here's where it comes back to the, to both morality, yes, but also just tr issues of trust. If you want people to support a technology, then the best way to go about it is to let them decide how they want it developed. Give them a bunch of different technical options and let them choose which one they want and guide the development from the beginning. So in the screwworm case, there are some early stage efforts by um, a number of Uruguayan scientists that have begun working with screwworm and trained with the USDA folks who have done some engineering of screwworm in the Central American facility. And now they're setting up a screwworm lab to begin editing and figuring out how best to build a different kinds of drive systems and screwworm in Uruguay. Is there friction between the, the people of Uruguay and the Uruguayan scientists? or is No, not at all. I have never... So, I mean, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time talking to different communities about biotech for ecological engineering and editing wild populations. Mm. And I have never seen anything like the meetings in Uruguay <laughs> where I had described this, how you would need to do a localized field trial in order to study the ecological effects. And, and a local stood up and he said, no, there will be no field trials. And I was like, uh-oh, here it comes. And he said, you tried that sterile, that sterile screwworm thing back in 2009 and nothing went wrong. That was the field trial. We will do the real thing now. <laughs> and politically speaking, the two different parties, which is you can think of as in Uruguay, it's mainly an urban party and a rural party, although they're less divided than most. Most of the political back and forth was accusing the other of being insufficiently supportive of getting rid of the screwworm. <laughs> So that's, that's always a good thing for a scientist to hear. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the urban want, want to see it as a stepping stone for developing the local biotech industry and improving overall economics. Cause it's a huge fraction of, it's like 0.2% of Uruguay's GDP is lost to this one species because so many agricultural animal exports. Right. And, and of course the farmers hate it because, you know, they, they're the ones working with these animals and they see them yeah. suffering this way. And, it hits the poorest hardest, so it'd be a major development aid, which is why the Inter-American Development Bank has been interested in, in supporting the Uruguayans' research. So I mainly went down there just to sort of say, hey, is anyone in the, interested in this? And the answer was an overwhelming yes, absolutely. <laughs> this would be great. So, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it will go anywhere, but it's a, it's a good example of how a community 
can decide that it is interested in exploring a technology and moving forwards without requiring, yeah. How does that compare Fan, to? Fancy MIT scientists to come in and <laughs> say how it should be done. <laughs> how does that compare to other places that you've tried to give these similar <clears throat> talks? Well, our other experiences have been working with, so I should start, start at the beginning. So after, you <clears throat> mean, so after discovering CRISPR-based gene drive and revealing it to the world and helping to persuade all of my colleagues that we in fact should use multiple layers of safeguards because it would be really bad for public trust if we accidentally turned a species into GMOs, which is certainly what the headlines would say, yeah. adding the follow-up question of, is CRISPR to blame? And then all of biotech would be right. on the hot seat. So we definitely would not want that. This is one of those cases where one person's mistake can really hit everyone, the whole biotech industry. So I was very interested in encouraging everyone to use necessary safeguards and also, but I also wanted to encourage community guidance. Not least because it is a separate check on whether or not it is actually worthwhile to pursue a research project. If you can't persuade the community who you think has the problem that your technology is worth developing in order to solve their problem, then you probably should be doing something else with your time because that one probably isn't worth it. <laughs> and even back then, I was also a little bit worried about misuse and people going too far because before CRISPR-based gene drive, we didn't have reliable ways or really any obvious way of building something in the lab where if you let it loose, it would spread on its own. We did not control exponential biology until then. And I wanted to be sure that we inculcated norms of extra caution and particularly inviting outside viewpoints rather than advancing gung-ho and doing it because it's awesome. It is awesome, <laughs> but that's not good enough reason to do it. <laughs> so I wanted to lead by example, and but I figured, well, okay, this idea of give people technical options and let them choose was the basic concept, community-guided research, or sometimes called responsive science. But how would you go about it? And I figured, well, we need a, a proof of principle in the most favorable possible environment, just so, because we don't know what, how best to go about it. What do I know about talking to communities about science? Like I've given a few public talks, but that's about it. So I figured, okay, what is the problem that is <clears throat> local? So it'd be easy for me to go there and develop a long standing relationship with the community back and forth multiple times is perhaps best solved by engineering a wild population and would involve communities with a long-standing tradition of making decisions together by talking about them in public. And I concluded that Lyme disease was pretty close to ideal <clears throat> because here in New England, we have a long tradition of New England town hall democracy. Some of the islands off the coast, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard are worst afflicted. They're also the most politically powerful communities in the world, or pretty close to it. So there's no question that I would somehow be pressuring them to do anything that they didn't want to do. 
The very idea is just ludicrous. Contrast that with developing something for malaria or schistosomiasis, where the, there are definitely questions of power balance that just don't come up if you're working on Lyme disease on Nantucket. And then the last one is it looks a lot like you could, in fact, prevent many cases of Lyme disease by editing the white-footed mouse. Because most infected ticks in New England, it seems, were infected by a tick that previously got infected when it bit an infected mouse. That is to say, the ecological cycle of Lyme disease is mouse to tick to mouse to tick to mouse to tick. And it's just unfortunate when that tick bites a human afterwards. If you engineer the mice to be immune, then you disrupt the cycle. And you wouldn't prevent all cases because there are reservoirs other than the mice, but you'd prevent a lot of them. Um, essentially, you would drive the cycle in reverse. What we've done is we've essentially engineered the environment to favor, to maximize the number of mice and the number of ticks relative to other things, thereby ensuring that you have more ticks biting more mice and transferring the pathogen back and forth, thereby maximizing the number of infected ticks. We did this accidentally because we love trees, but we carve them up with roads and houses. So we maximize forest perimeter, which favors the mice and the deer. And the more deer you have, the more ticks you have. Every deer is a walking million ticks in its lifetime in the next generation. So then the question is, what are the technical options? And the idea is, well, we could certainly engineer those mice to express antibodies that prevent them from becoming infected. And we could, those antibodies could come from lab mice or they could come from white-footed mice that we find. What's the difference? Well, functionally, not very much, except that it'd be way easier to use lab mice antibodies because we already have them. And if we could engineer them in lab, that'd be even better and easier. But then that would involve moving genes across species boundaries, which really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. So we wouldn't have to do that. We could grab antibodies from white-footed mice and then just encode those antibody genes in the white-footed mouse genome such that it could be passed on to descendants. This doesn't normally happen. Right now, a bunch of folks in my family are sick because it's that time of year. Sure would be lovely if you could never get infected by any disease that any of your ancestors had ever had. That would be awesome. Yeah, that, that's quite a push. <laughs> that's not how our, our immune systems work. And that's not what we're proposing to do to the mice, of course, a generalized system that would do that. But rather, it's a, if one animal is immune, figure out which antibody genes confer immunity, encode those in the genome, but in the germline cells and the reproductive cells so that it can be inherited by the next generation. Any descendant that inherits that gene will then be able to resist the disease. That's the idea. And then we might also be able to engineer the mice to outright kill the ticks. And so these were our options when going to the community. And of course, if your options are only genes from the relevant species, no, no genes across species boundaries, or move it across boundaries, anti-Lyme or anti-tick or both, there's an implicit, do you want CRISPR-based gene drive in there? Because CRISPR, of course, is not found in the genome of the mice. 
But I also wasn't certain that we wanted to start with a gene drive because we still weren't certain at the time that we had the localization down. And honestly, we're still not. And it was far from clear that we even could get it working really well in the mice. Whereas I was pretty confident that we could figure out a way to engineer their germline and put in an antibody gene. Although it has admittedly taken longer than I had hoped. So we went to the community and essentially laid it out and had a great discussion. And I was, I put all my cards on the table. I said, the whole reason we're doing this is because yes, you know, you have a problem and Lyme disease is awful, but it's also because I want to set a new norm of how we do science, which is go to a relevant community and lay out the options and do whatever they say. So in this case, if you tell us it's not worth it, we're not interested, go away, then we will, and that will be it. And we won't even pursue the project with some other community because if you think it's that bad of an idea, why go around fishing? We have other important things to do. But if you do think it's a good idea, then we want to figure out how do you manage community guidance. And I laid out all the reasons why Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard were good places to figure that out, not least incredibly well-educated from a scientific perspective. Almost everyone living on the islands knows someone who understands the technical details of what we're proposing, which is just not true almost anywhere else in the world. So essentially it was a figure out how to do this and establish a norm for ecological engineering development in the future. And it turned out that was really important because there are a, a number of folks on the islands who aren't so keen on the idea of genetic engineering, even, not, even in a not-for-profit way, and really aren't keen on the idea of engineering wild po populations of wild animals. But they really like the way that we're going about it. And so they support the project, even if they personally are likely to vote against release at the end. And they know that they're probably going to lose that vote as well. But they still support the project because... They want to encourage this method of community-guided science. And that, to them, is worth the cost. Because they accept that th this is how communities make decisions. And bringing science and technology development into this method of governance to decide what the course of the future should be is, to them, worth losing this one particular application. I think that's a really powerful message there, that having this, this message of transparency helps everyone, including the scientists. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's probably the number one lesson is that a lot of people are willing to support the process, even if they don't like what's going to come out of it for this particular issue. And we don't give people enough credit sometimes. They really are willing to look decades ahead and say, this issue is not as important as establishing that precedent for all of the future things. Have you ever run into communities that felt the opposite way? Not yet. Okay. But our other experiences were interested in relieving the animal suffering from um, all of the rodents that we kill. We kill around a billion rodents a year. And most of them in truly horrific ways involving rodenticides that give you the equivalent of a, of a cluster headache, much worse than a migraine, for 72 hours before death. That's what most of the super warfarin rodenticides do to most of those rodents that we kill. So we're interested in this question of can we use, not necessarily gene drive, but 
engineered population suppression in rodents. But here our hand was somewhat forced because the New Zealand government announced that they intended to get rid of all mammalian invasives by 2050, which very much included rats. <laughs> rats and mice. So if we develop this technology, then New Zealand government was effectively saying, we're going to use it. And so I was curious, would that be a good idea? Because what do I know about the environment in Aotearoa, New Zealand? Nothing. There's Kiwis there. Like, <laughs> okay, everything's invasive in Aotearoa. That's, that's sort of by proxy and okay. But what would the impact be? I don't know. And... But there were some colleagues there who were interested, and one of them invited me, and I expressed an interest in meeting some Maori leaders, you know, the indigenous people, the iwis in Aotearoa. And so he set up some meetings and, and introduced me, and I spoke with them extensively and, and essentially said, look, as you know, there's a lot of interest in using CRISPR-based gene drive. This is on me. I invented it. But if you and your people think this is a bad idea, I am happy to publicly say that this is a terrible idea and oppose it and see if, see if we can shift New Zealand opinion away from it. And I disclosed, I also had this ulterior motive and I wanted to prevent anyone from using the full power version for conservation. Because if you build the self-propagating CRISPR-based suppression drive to control your local rat population, well, how did the rats get there in the first place? They stowed away. Well, so will the gene drive rats and spread it all around the world. And then you're going to crash populations of rats everywhere, which in most of the world is probably ecologically going to be a good thing. But that doesn't mean people are going to be happy about having engineered organisms invading their territory. And those rats did come from a native population in Eurasia where they might be doing something ecologically important. I don't know. But the uncontrolled spread of biotech around the world is not exactly going to do any good for when it comes to building trust and support for biotech in general, and specifically not for gene drive. So if conservationists screw up and let loose a gene drive system that spreads around the world, then they would jeopardize target malaria's work, which on most moral grounds is just much more important. So ensuring that there are no PR disasters that could undermine support for use of the technology against malaria was always an underlying factor. And so I was very upfront with that as well. And the Maori gave a much, very nuanced range of responses as you would expect. There's tremendous differences between the different iwis of Maori and Aotearoa, between the South Island and the North Island. And they have different conservation needs and, and different you know, social pressures and so forth. But it was still a, a really remarkably eye-opening experience. Um, some of my colleagues there said somewhat affectionately, your culture has blinded you. It's not your fault, but you just cannot see the mental and spiritual aspects of reality at all. All you see is the dance of the atoms. <laughs> I was like, well, I would like to think that we have some sort of knowledge of patterns of informational complexity. He's like, no, 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 no. That is, that is not the same thing as the mental realm at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, but spiritual, you know, definitely got me there. So learning to 
but but of course we know, and you know, just the whole reason I was there originally is I was thinking of this as an ecological thing. But fair point with the spiritual, definitely not my strong suit. And so listening to them and how they and how they think about this was was really quite rewarding, and I think has fostered my own respect for a, holding a diversity of moral worldviews in a sort of a world moral parliament. In in my own head, at least, and. More broadly, I mean, we'll we'll see. We're still struggling to get that technology working um, more than the Lyme disease one. So we'll see where it goes. But it was, yeah, it was a really good experience listening to them. And that was unfortunately disrupted by the pandemic. So we'll see where we go from here. So speaking of, of pandemics and uh, small actions that can take consequence around the world you're oh is that a segue yeah that's a that's a, that's a segue i've been looking for this segue so you're a uh, you're very passionate about existential threats uh of a lot of sorts but particularly on pandemics you've been warning about pandemics long before covid happened um and uh you've done several things to try and uh prevent future pandemics and, and future problems with uh biological weapons or biological problems in general, um, including this delay, detect, defend uh, publication that you have with, with Geneva. Um, so would you be able to just kind of give an overview of that or talk about um, your views on existential threats and what you think are kind of the priorities? Yeah, so this gets back to tie, tie things back to my interest was really out of CRISPR-based gene drive because as I said, I woke up on the second day and thought, oh my God, what are we, <laughs> is this going to be a weapon? Is this? And it occurred to me that there's really nothing out there for scientists to advise you on what to do when you figure that you've glimpsed something that is potentially extremely powerful and tells you how to evaluate it. Who is it safe to tell? How do you go about assessing that? And I, just thinking ahead, the whole reason for the famous Asilomar conference at the dawn of the recombinant DNA era, which, of course, much of the debate took place in the city of Cambridge here, where we're sitting. That whole debate was sparked by the fear that the next atom bomb lay hidden within biology, which David Baltimore and others have spoke of, of eloquently. And at, so molecular biologists called a moratorium on all recombinant DNA research and then they had a big gathering at the Asilomar conference grounds, where over a few days they essentially hashed it out and said, we don't think that we will be able to engineer things that will are likely to spread on their own for some time. And we don't think we'll be able to edit the human germline for some time. So we're going to kick those two cans down the road. And in the meantime, we're just going to use, here is a you know, a framework for self-regulation in terms of we'll only do recombinant DNA in these, in these safe backgrounds and the like, and then we'll, <clears throat> and then as we move beyond that, here's how we're going to look at each new step moving forwards. But they were 100% correct that we would not be able to do those two things for some number of decades. Well, now with CRISPR-based gene drive and CRISPR for germline editing, we can do both of those things. But we're not fundamentally reappraising our responsibility for dealing with these questions as a scientific community. That is to say, the entire framework for self-regulation in biotechnology is because Asilomar determined that we wouldn't be able to do stuff that we now know we can do. We now know we can build 
things that will spread exponentially. And I would, even though gene drive favors defense, most of biology does not. So just that got me thinking about it. And so for the last decade, I just do not see a way that we will be able to manipulate the stuff of life the way that we hope to be able to do in order to abolish disease and aging and so forth. Because it comes down to Feynman. What I cannot create, I do not understand. We want to understand pandemics so we can prevent them. But we're going to learn how to create them before we manage to do that. It doesn't seem like it's a good idea to disseminate the knowledge of how to create things that you cannot yet defend against that will cause millions of deaths. And yet that is the default course that we are following because we are so used to fighting nature that we just haven't really wrapped our heads around the possibility of human misuse. And I find this tremendously disturbing. And so I've been doing my best to encourage us to take another look at this and say, this is on us. We said we had this. I mean, admittedly, it happened before I was born. But even so, culturally speaking, it's on us because our community said we've got this. Self-regulation is the way to go. Nuclear physicists do not get to regulate their own field. The security community said, no, that is not a thing. And I am frankly somewhat mystified as to why they have not stepped in to date. And it is largely, I believe, a legacy of not a lot of biological expertise there. When you look at it at the end of the day, what if you want to know which natural viruses can cause pandemics so you can prevent them from spilling over, you cannot discover that without giving everyone who has the ability to acquire those viruses to develop defenses in the laboratory, the ability to release them and cause the very plagues that we're hoping to prevent and mitigate. You just can't have it both ways. And the hard part is the virology community really feels attacked right now due to the origin of COVID controversy. They feel like the whole world is ganged up on virology and they have to circle the wagons. They are, a number of them are receiving appalling threats of, you know, of abuse, death threats and the like. So are some of their families. And we as a scientific community have to stand up against that. That kind of abuse and threats is what we do need to circle the wagons against. But we should not be circling the wagons in defense of scientists' ability to do whatever the heck they want. Because the fraction of virology that actually is at risk is 0.1% perhaps of all experiments. It's very narrowly defined. Can a pathogen infect and grow in human primary cells of the relevant type? So for respiratory pathogens, human primary airway epithelial cells. And can it be transmitted between relevant animal models of humans in sufficient sample size? On the other hand, for engineered things, if you engineer an existing human pathogen that we know has the capability of spreading efficiently from human to human, if you figure out some way to 
trigger immune evasion, we know that that is a fitness advantage, just like Omicron took over from earlier variants. It's better at immune evasion. It seems to have other advantages too, but the main one is immune evasion. So experiments that measure the growth of a virus in human primary cells or study transmission in animal models or quantify immune evasion while measuring those other things, that's it. Which means you want to sequence all the viruses out there to make sure your broad spectrum vaccine candidates will cover everything? Sure, great, go ahead. You want to play about with the spike proteins and different variations of those so that you can be sure that your antibodies will all bind? Okay, just don't run the immune evasion tests and on human sera. And absolutely, test individual epitopes and the like. Test individual escape mutations and the like. Sure, go ahead. The list of experiments that create security hazards is very, very, very narrow. And of course, if you're worried about accidents, you need a replication competent virus. So should we be making chimeras of SARS-1 and SARS-2? No. Those are now on the select agent list. Why are they on the select agent list? Because multiple laboratories express their intent to do it. Immediately, like the first thing was, we had all this discussion over, should we be doing this in, in terms of enhancing transmissibility of influenza? And the, and the report on that, which is a thousand pages plus long, essentially concluded that, well, we've already sort of done everything you can try to do in influenza. So the additional risk is pretty small there. But we haven't done anything like that in coronaviruses. And so doing anything like that would be, would be really dangerous, anything that would try to make like SARS-1 more transmissible. And so we end up with a pandemic that kills 20 million people. And the first response of people is, let's make a bunch of chimeras of SARS-1 and SARS-2 to see if we can combine the, the greatly increased lethality of SARS-1 with the transmissibility of SARS-2. And there's multiple independent laboratories decide they want to do that. These are all people who are well-meaning and want to save lives. But I submit that they have not seriously thought about the security implications of that. Because SARS-2 by itself has killed more people than any single nuclear detonation plausibly could. If you look at operational nuclear warheads, and you can target any city you want, you're not going to find one on the nuke map simulator that's going to give you as many casualties as SARS-2 has inflicted. Not even close. So we're already dealing with a capability that is nuclear level lethality. And it's way more accessible. And here's the other thing. A lot of the folks seem to think, oh, well, bi biology requires a lot of tacit knowledge. And you're right, biology does, research does. But once there's a detailed step-by-step -step protocol, especially one published in a protocols journal like Nature Protocols, the whole point of protocols journals like that is to make techniques accessible to people from well outside the relevant field. And there are protocols like that for reverse genetics and virology. If you want to obtain infectious samples of a virus from nothing more than a genome sequence, there are now pretty good reverse genetics protocols for most families of viruses. Meaning if you can get the synthetic DNA, you can probably acquire infectious samples. And I know because some of my own graduate students who didn't have a lot of background who had some background in tissue culture, but not a whole lot, and no prior experience with virology, 
were nevertheless able to obtain some replicons from a couple of different families, just working off of the protocols. So you can do the math as to how many people actually do have access, it depends on the virus family. But it's just a lot easier than it used to be. And I think we need to face that fact and try to buy as much time as we can, because right now we know if there's another pandemic that is more lethal than SARS-2, we're going to be in deep trouble. And there are two scenarios that we're now working on articulating where we could be in a lot more trouble to the point of losing the stability of civilization itself. Those are a heck of a lot less likely to happen with a natural pandemic than something engineered, which is in part why I'm concerned that we might, out of with the best of intentions, work to engineer things that are substantially worse than nature is ever likely to actually throw at us. But at the end of the day, how are you going to delay and buy time? Probably by limiting access to unauthorized access to synthetic DNA. Because if you have the genome sequence and you have the step-by-step -step reverse genetics protocol, you can only obtain infectious virus if you can get synthetic DNA corresponding to that genome. The problem is right now, you can order that from any number of companies that don't screen orders for hazards. How can we fix that? Well, you need to have offer free DNA synthesis screening to all providers in the world in a form that preserves customer privacy so biotechs can comfortably place orders knowing that no one's gonna get an idea of what it is that they're working on and can be integrated into next-gen DNA synthesizers on a hardware level, especially because a lot of folks seem to think that the future is in benchtop machines, that instead of waiting for your DNA synthesis order to come in the mail next day, you punch it into the machine on the desktop and it spits out the DNA that you need for your experiment same day. So we need to build screening into those machines next generation. So that's one of the things that we've been working on we have a Swiss nonprofit called Secure DNA. And that is the outgrowth of years of work and collaboration between colleagues in China and Europe and the US, mainly cryptographers. Um, and I'm deeply grateful to Ron Rivest, among others, for initially making the introductions between those. But now it's a very international science diplomacy effort to get a handle on this problem. But it has not done well for my peace of mind, just because talking with cryptographers has made me realize how, what, what a limited security mindset I have. And so if I look around at the field of biology and think, oh my God, what are we doing? And then I speak with them and I realize that I'm a toddler compared to them <laughs> in terms of thinking about things can go wrong. This does not do well for my peace of mind. But we are we now have a product that is offered for free that is fully automated and cryptographically secured and available to, for now, select industry partners, but we hope to open it up to everyone by the end of the year. And if successful and everyone adopts it and then maybe countries can encourage adoption by saying, yep, you got to do screening of some sort, it's free, what's your excuse, just do it, then I think we can probably reduce access by maybe as much as a hundredfold and that will buy us time. Do you think uh, people wanting to take this extra step to have this secured access is going to slow things down? Do you think this is probably going to end up being a problem where companies don't want to adopt this policy? 
So this is our number one concern, is how can we make it easier on the companies and the customers to use our service than not? And so the basic idea is, first of all, it has to be 100% specific. That is, no false alarms at all. And that required some algorithmic acrobatics and changes. You certainly can't use similarity search algorithms anymore. So instead, we search for exact matches. And then in order to ensure that you can't just mutate the sequence, introduce a few changes that alter the sequence but not the function, we quasi-randomly pick sequences of, say, the viral genome, and we predict all functional variants out to a very large number, and then we quasi-randomly include some of those in the database of things that we're looking for. So the adversary doesn't know which particular sequences are defended or how well. And so in order to try to evade, they would need to introduce changes at a very high density throughout the whole viral genome, for example. But we can screen all of those against all known sequences and remove anything that, is that matches something unrelated. So then we can get rid of basically all false alarms. And then the other way that we can do it is to ensure that everyone has access to whatever they have permission to make. I'm on MIT's biosafety committee. And we, of course, approve individual genes and organisms for people to work with that they've requested. That document, that, that biological research registration, is a list of all those things, and it can be easily converted into a format that Security DNA recognizes and can provide a certificate such that your whatever you're already approved to get, if you submit your certificate with the DNA synthesis order, then you can get anything that is on your certificate. Doesn't matter. In fact, you don't even need to know whether it's considered hazardous or not. If you're approved for it, you get it, period, the end. And so it's just built into the process of ordering from the beginning. And it's also easier for the biosafety committees to evaluate because they can run secure DNA on the requests. I, I think that's a very important piece to making sure it's adopted because I, I come from a, a DOD background and a lot of people don't want to work on classified projects because it's a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Like it's, there's just too much red tape and, and all kinds of crazy stuff that you have to go through. So if you're going to lose a lot of the possible progress by hindering it. So making it as smooth as possible, I think is super important. And screening is near instantaneous. And if you hit a public hazard, then we tell you exactly what the problem is sequence wise. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that covers the delay in the delay detect defend. Well, there's one more thing, which is a policy oh, okay. thing. Okay. So this is actually generic. This is not bio-specific. This is right. just, if, we, if you are at all concerned that technology is becoming sufficiently powerful in domains that might favor offense over defense, then you should be somewhat concerned that we will discover something inadvertently and disseminate it in ways that will cause net harm, potentially catastrophic harm. Because if it's not catastrophic harm, why do we care? Science is clearly massively net positive in almost all cases. It's only those edge cases that could bring everything down that really threaten us. So how do you deal with those? Well, one idea is you need to set a high bar for catastrophe and say you're legally liable for the consequences of any catastrophe defined as, say, more than 100,000 American deaths in a year. 
And even if you are very indirectly involved in that consequence chain, like some terrorist takes the thing that you made and put out there and uses it and kills more than 100,000 Americans in a year, you're still legally liable for those wrongful death suits and damages. More to the point, your institution is liable. But it only really works if you have, if general liability insurance that institutions get has to cover this kind of catastrophe liability. Because if you put it together, you have something where, I mean, how, how often has there been something that killed 100,000 Americans in a year, right? Te new technology-wise, basically never. So you're not really adding any significant new regulatory burden because it's going to apply to almost nothing. Research in pandemics is obviously one area that would apply, right, right. but it wouldn't apply to almost anything else. And But if insurance had to cover it, then that means that the insurance companies have an incentive to assess how risky it actually is. That is, they have to figure out what is the potential magnitude of the harm, what is the likelihood of it actually occurring based on a given proposal, and then adjust the liability insurance premiums as needed. Basically, we're outsourcing the risk assessment to the industry associated with risk assessment. And we already, to some extent, do this. I mean, and there's already liability, for example, nuclear power plant operators are liable for terrorist attacks leading to meltdowns because it's a foreseeable disaster caused by other humans, but still it's a foreseeable disaster and therefore they must prepare for, it. prepare for it. And of course, the consequences of catastrophe are often beyond what the insurance industry can handle. So you would need to cap the overall damages to something that wouldn't bankrupt the reinsurance industry and then have the government be the sort of secondary insurer such that if you really want to do something that is really carries a high risk of catastrophe, then the in private sector insurance would set the price, they would cover the fraction they can cover, and then you have to write a check to the government for the remainder. And if it is a project that offers good enough benefits, we should go for it. That is, if the funder is willing to cover the risk insurance premiums associated with the catastrophe risk, then that project should go forward. We should want it to go forwards. And in that case, it would go forwards. But if the downside risk that is currently just negative externalities not counted is great enough, then that means that the funder might decide, well, maybe I'm going to fund some project that doesn't have such amazing potential benefits, but also doesn't have that degree of downside risk. Because the expected benefit per dollar is correspondingly greater for the other project now that you factor in the risks. Right now, we're just not factoring the risks at all, right? Funders are, assess what the expected benefits are. They don't even think about the risks. So you, ideally, you just want to encourage risk assessment of just the catastrophic risks, so something that is a trigger law, where it only kicks in above a certain insanely high casualty count where things go, have gone really, 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 really wrong. But then any anyone who thinks that a research project is going to potentially cause this kind of problem can just notify the relevant insurance company and then they'll look into it and determine yes, no, adjust the premiums accordingly and done. So I think catastrophe and insurance and liability is probably one of the most important generalized policy proposals to deal with the risk of technology causing catastrophe in the future. And you said this is already covering nuclear power plants and uh, nuclear facilities. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a strong legal precedent for this kind of thing. Yeah. 
that that comparison gets drawn a lot between uh, biological warfare or biological agents and, and nuclear weapons. Um, Matthew Methelson, who I had on, who was absolutely amazing, who I, I think you might know. Matt's a hero. Yeah. No. Um, he uh, he the, his whole argument was based on nuclear weapons, saying that nuclear weapons were, were very well restricted, and this is something that we this is not a model we can follow with biological weapons because they're so much cheaper and so much easier to access. Um, and so it's a great, there are things that we can learn, but there it's, it, it really is a different animal. Yeah. This, the challenge is that I've found people often look at the magnitude of the problem and say, you know, at a minimum, I would say 30,000 people with PhDs can assemble any influenza virus they want today. That's, that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of scary. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Good God. What are we going to do? Yeah. So the point is, well, okay. DNA synthesis screening, that'll lop that down to a few hundred done well. Actually a little higher than that. Cause a lot of labs have permission to work with influenza. So enough of them that, but it'll all be folks who got permission to work with the relevant agent, as opposed to anyone who can place a DNA synthesis order and buy a few tens of thousands of dollars worth of Tissue culture incubator and, and hood on eBay. Um, and then what about the risk of a particular kind of pandemic that we've only seen once before and in a slower motion form? That is, what if there's something subtle that could infect a bulk of humanity before we even notice the negative side effects because they come years after initial infection? And the obvious th one to think about here is HIV. What do we have in place to detect the next HIV, especially if it's faster spreading than the original, before it infects a wide fraction of humanity? And the answer today is we have nothing. We are not prepared for that at all. And if there was something that was fast spreading but had those kinds of downstream consequences, we could be in deep, deep, deep trouble. But the answer here is fairly straightforward. The threat from biology is exponential growth or at least quasi-exponential growth, doesn't have to be strictly exponential. Something that doesn't display that kind of growth pattern isn't a threat, just because it doesn't scale to the whole world. Which means that if we sequence approximately everything, just deep metagenomic sequencing of some relevant samples, and we look for nucleic acid fragments of a particular length that are growing quasi-exponentially, in that sample set, or across many different sites, those that appear more and more frequently across more and more sites, similar sort of concept. Those are the ones we have to worry about. And what's more, no adversary working with any biological thing that we can plausibly sequence, doesn't matter how clever they are in terms of redesigning it, using what futuristic ML-based technology, if it's gonna be a weapon, it has to grow quasi-exponentially which means we will be able to see it. So this is what we call the Nucleic Acid Observatory Project, which essentially is looking at, is it best to use sort of municipal wastewater sequencing and looking for things in wastewater at, at the city level for a number of cities, or should we be looking at airplane, airport wastewater, or should we be looking at, say, f flight crews as sentinels? Because for pandemic class events, the population of frequent air travelers is either going to be the first population affected in the event of a deliberate pandemic. Obviously, that would be the first place one would release it, as a number of movies have attested. 
thank you, Hollywood, for, <laughs> for giving everyone the give idea. Give everyone the idea. <laughs> and or they're going to be the second. That is, if it starts somewhere else in the world, like say in Wuhan, then the way it's going to spread to the rest of the world is through frequent air travelers. So you monitor air traffic and you're likely to pick it up early. So right now the numbers look pretty promising in terms of, you know, th things could change based on the sensitivity in particular of how an agent comes out in the wastewater um, and so forth. But for SARS-2-like things, it looks, we're pretty confident that you can detect it before one in a thousand people and frequent air travelers um, gets infected, which means quite a bit before that. Um, in terms of the general population, we would know that it was there. So I'll feel a lot better once we have that system up and running. <laughs> and there is interest among DOD and others in putting money towards that and running their own system and so forth, um, which is also important for credibility reasons. But if we can delay for long enough so that we can reliably detect anything, then the question is, well, what are we going to do about it? And here there's two obvious answers. So set aside the subtle threat for the moment and just say, okay, what if there is a version of Omicron that is 70% lethal? Suppose you're a meatpacking worker. They give you an N95. Are you going to go to work? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> huh, guess we're not packing any meat. Yeah. Oh, wait, isn't pretty much all food packaging and distribution not quite that vulnerable, but still yeah. working close with a bunch of other people? Even like water distribution, certainly power distribution. Oh, wait, I think law enforcement has to deal with being close to other humans. N95s are just not going to cut it with an agent like that. People aren't going to believe that it will reliably keep them safe, such that even if everyone perfectly wore N95s all the time, honestly, the modeling does not suggest that that would be enough because we're not good enough at wearing them. Most people have not been trained in yeah, fit the, testing the, in N95 yeah, and, and so forth. And, and the... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And even though, you know, in that kind of scenario, people would be willing to wear masks and people would take precautions, the problem is actually that essential workers would say, yeah, no, thank you. Because they know that if they go out and get infected, they're going to bring it home to their family and kill their family too. Right. So, but the obvious solution is figure out exactly who needs it in the most essential industries and make much better protective equipment. So we call it pandemic proof personal protective equipment. And we already basically have it. It's just, it's clunky and overly expensive and not really designed for it, but it needs to not require any kind of fit testing and be comfortable and easy to use by someone totally untrained. So basically a better version of this powered air purifying respirator thing that just has a, has an air pump and a battery. And right now, turns out, thanks to consumer electronics, our air pump, our, our fans and batteries are really, really, really good now. <laughs> Relative, whereas basically all, you know, powered air purifying respirators were designed, oh, around 2000 or so. Yeah, we have, we have way so better tech now. Yeah. Way, way, way better tech now for building these things. So it looks like we can make them a lot cheaper and if we stockpile enough such that we can send them to the doorsteps of everyone we've identified as essential in advance, as soon as there's a pandemic, and of course we believe that Amazon can do this because obviously Amazon could do this yeah. along with the other di distribution companies, then 
in, against that kind of scenario, which we call the wildfire scenario, will be basically set, as long as people believe the damn thing will work. So that just means you need to involve some celebrities and folks who want to spend time with their favorite celebrity and pump in a common cold <laughs> rhinovirus or some sort, and the celebrity gets to wear the equipment and the fans don't. And that's the cost of getting to interact with celebrity, and I'm sure that would be great reality TV. And oh. <laughs> Do that enough with enough celebrities, people will believe the damn PPE actually works. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, there, there are things, there are things like that. That, that is an eminently solvable problem. But what if it's a subtle agent and people don't believe it's real? So in the long run, what we want to do is just block all infectious disease transmission. And here the key is you want to kill everything that is not multicellular, which is actually surprisingly easier than it sounds because multicellular things have much bigger cells. Okay. Our cells are much bigger than those of bacteria and we're certainly way bigger than viruses. And so if you use wavelengths of light that are absorbed strongly by proteins, then they don't penetrate us very well at all. They basically hit the outer layer of our very large cells and the proteins just soak them up. And it turns out we don't need the outer layer of our cells. In fact, the outer layer of our skin is actually already dead cells, multiple layers of them. And the outer layer of our eyes gets sloughed off every 24 hours. So they just take the protein beating and no big deal as best we can tell. And if you're a bacterium or a virus floating in the air, it's quite another story. You don't have nearly as much protein between you and your DNA. And more to the point, you need all of that protein. Because if you want to replicate yourself, you're reliant on your own protein. And if it gets trashed by the light, then you can't do that. So currently in the United States, the approved levels, exposure levels of 222 nanometer light are sufficient on an eight-hour basis to inactivate 90% of airborne aerosolized viruses and bacteria every 60 seconds. So if we had it in this room, every 60 seconds it would wipe out 90% of the floating pathogens. And this table in between us here, which of course the listeners cannot see, Oh, they can, oh, the was, listeners can't see it, but the video people can see it. They'll see the table. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, promoting you know, CO2 some, water. You know, I've been, I've been having, I've been gesticulating on this table and touching it and so forth. So, if I've left left any kind of germs on this table, then the light would hit them and destroy them as well. So, pretty much all, primarily aerosol transmitted or surface transmitted infections, it will just wipe the floor with them, and we can plausibly. We need, we need research studies to figure out this key question of how high can we go on this 222 nanometer light. I like to call it low wave light because it's low wavelength. Some people call it far UVC and so forth. I don't like the ter term UV because people think, oh, well, UV gives you cancer. But the point is this doesn't. It's yeah, UV, wildly different. Yeah, UV is very behavior. broad. So yeah. Right. You know, UV is a tremendously broad term that covers a huge area of the spectrum. Right. Physicists have opinions about what should and should not be called the UV. <laughs> but on biological safety grounds, there's this huge chasm between stuff that gets absorbed by proteins and stuff, stuff that doesn't. Right. And stuff that causes DNA damage compared and, to, right. Right, exactly. So on biological safety grounds, you just shouldn't call this stuff UV at all, which is why I prefer calling it low wavelength. But some people call it far UVC. Some people just call it 222, although really anything below 230, ideally above 210. Mm -hmm 
um, is probably pretty good for this. So I'm excited by this because it's the sort of thing that would make us much safer in the long run. Just this, this is what we need, something that just flat out blocks transmission of everything human to human. Not everything, doesn't do bloodborne, et cetera. But of the things that we're most worried about for pandemics, it works unusually well on those particular kinds of pathogens. So we need work to determine how high can we safely go. Obviously we need it to be adaptive so that it's not on when there's only one person in the room or, but, and the more people there are in the room, then the higher intensity needs to, you know, it is a little bit ionizing. So it makes a little bit of ozone. So obviously you need to ensure that they keep the ozone levels down or otherwise yeah. use, you know, their, their amazing ozone decomposition catalysts work, yeah. work those out. It's a very eminently solvable problem. And it's not really an issue at the current levels, but if you want to go much, much, much higher, then we would need to address that. But again, very solvable problem. And then we need actual epidemiological efficacy studies because we know perfectly well how many pathogens are inactivated in what time because those are easy studies to run. But what you need to convince the doctors and epidemiologists is an actual trial. And that means something like a cruise ship or a remote scientific installation where you just have people coming in infrequently, maybe an oil rig. And then you want to track transmission of all known human respiratory pathogens through um, through the population as they're introduced. So Arctic or Antarctic cruise ships, oil rigs, yeah, things like that. I, uh, I, I read about that in, in your report, and I, I had some questions about it because if you're kind of blanketly wiping out a lot of these, these potential pathogens, is that going to kind of compromise people's immune systems because they're no longer having to fight with a lot of these systems all the time if i put my hand under this is this going to screw up my, my my skin microbiome how is this going to have like long-term effects that aren't directly related to pandemics well these are all relevant safety questions what is it yeah. going to do to the skin microbiome yeah. the answer is probably nothing because most of them are not so on the surface okay otherwise they would actually be affected by sunlight and so forth and you know and desiccation and so forth so they tend to be deeper down and better protected but it's one of the things that's on the research safety agenda mm -hmm. is look at human skin microbiome for okay. sustained exposure effects. Um, the question of what is it going to do to our immune systems in the long run if if we eliminate basically all infections. Right. So disease, if we live in this essentially sterile, well, this semi-sterile environment because we have the lights in here, but I, then I go outside into the outside world and the, the, the lights aren't everywhere, so now all of a sudden I'm being exposed to all of this. Am I going to be... Well, if you're being exposed to things and continually getting infected with things... Then it works, sure. But what if I just then, don't go outside? Well, if I'm a homebody and I'm sitting in these lights all the time, which a lot of people probably would well, be... Well, let's, let's pause it. What if it works? I mean, essentially what okay. you're asking is what if it works and we just don't yes. get exposed to common cold pathogens or general infectious disease again? Right. What is that going to do to our immune systems? Mm not having anything to fight. Which is kind of a lovely question because like we're positing, okay, well, what if we end infectious disease? Could things go wrong? And the answer is uh, maybe, but we would have ended infectious disease. Well, we wouldn't have ended infectious disease. We would have ended infectious disease like in inside environments where we could have had these lights. Oh, but if you're going elsewhere and getting infected, then your immune system will be tuned by your exposure to those pathogens. Yeah. You will not 
you will still there will still be infectious disease with you, and you shouldn't expect any potential autoimmune effects because your immune mm -hmm. system will still be getting the occasional workout. Okay, it's if you actually block it all. Then the question is, what, what is your immune system going to do? And we know that, turns out, you get rid of parasitic intestinal worms. Rates of allergies go way up. Huh. Well, if anyone doesn't like that trade, they can infect themselves with intestinal worms again at any time. And there are a few crazy people who actually do this. Mm -hmm. And if their allergies are severe enough, I suppose... That could be a worthwhile trade. It's certainly up to them. But I haven't noticed a flood of people advocating for returning to <laughs> intestinal parasites <laughs> in order to control our problems with allergies and other autoimmune phenomena. So the answer is, even if we were to hand wave this and say, oh, no, we'd never come up with any compensatory measures. Like, obviously, we know we've cataloged all or is it, I think it's like 226 known human pathogens right now. Something like, something very close to that. We know all those antigens. We can just make them and expose them to people periodically and set off the relevant immune alarms as needed. But even if we didn't, I suspect it'd be worth it. Certainly as the parent of two young children. Yeah. Totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no question it'll be worth it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. So one of the other things that really stood out in, in your report was that uh, it had a really big emphasis on infrastructure. And one line that kind of caught me was these pandemics will spread faster than we are capable of spreading inoculations or vaccines or treatments for these uh, for these issues. Um, why do you think that's definitely true? Um, and do you think there's a way to try and prevent that? Well, number one, we just have to look at Omicron. So... We sequenced Omicron in November, and 100 days later, 100 days after sequencing, it had infected 26% of Americans and nearly half of Europeans. The U.S. National Biodefense Strategy calls for a vaccine to be available within 100 days and to have manufactured enough doses for every American within 130 days. So that's a very rapid timeline. That's a tremendously rapid timeline. It's commonly referred to as a moonshot, and it's not yeah. fast enough to deal with Omicron, which arose in one site in Africa at the time we sequenced it. A deliberate pandemic, again, thank you, Hollywood, is going to involve releases at airports. Releases at airports cause it to spread much more quickly. What's more, any one who can release one deliberate pandemic virus, unless there is only one known deliberate, one pandemic virus that is known. And again, unfortunately, some of my well-meaning colleagues think it is a good idea to create a ranked order list and populate them with all the most dangerous things. It's not that much harder to make several viruses in parallel using reverse genetics protocols if you're already making one. And of course, if you're a terrorist and you're uncertain whether or not this particular virus actually would take off, of course you're going to make several of them. Meaning we might not be facing one agent against which to develop medical countermeasures against and distribute them and so forth. It could very well be several at the same time. So given that we already don't think we could move fast enough to deal with one, it just seems like a offense-biased scenario. 
one person with the relevant skills could release multiple pandemics that then the entire world would have to defend against. And if there were still more known pandemic viruses, they could then do it again, or someone else could do it again. And I have a hard time envisioning a future in which we don't learn how to make eventually quasi-infinite pandemics with potentially worse consequences than natural things. It's just, at the end of the day, what is extreme mastery of biotech mean? I'm just not willing to bet that we're somehow not going to learn how to do that eventually. Not necessarily deliberately. I'm not saying we're going to be bioweapons program. We could do it. We could learn how to do that without any bioweapons program contributing at all. I just submit that understanding how to manipulate biology well enough is likely to eventually allow us to build quasi-infinite pandemics, which means we probably ought to learn how to block infectious disease transmission. And it seems unwise to gamble on our ability to come up with a medical countermeasure when we still say don't have an HIV vaccine. And again, if you struggle to make a vaccine against a natural agent, you should really question your ability to make something that will stand up to an adversarial agent. So being able to make vaccines and distribute large quantities very, very quickly is of the utmost importance against natural and accidental pandemics. In fact, what I would love to see more of my colleagues doing, especially the ones who have focused on natural spillover for a long time and empowering local communities and hotspots, they've been doing it for long enough that there's a lot of new tools on the block now that didn't exist or weren't proven five years ago. To me, it seems like the best possible strategy for preventing natural pandemics is to ensure that all of the hotspot communities, yes, know what an epidemic looks like, but have access to, say, nanopore sequencings so that they can give us the whole genome sequence within one day of even detecting that there is an outbreak. Sequence several people, share the genome, day one. And ideally, we would have already have one nucleic acid vaccine against one member of every family of viruses, which in most regulatory jurisdictions means you can run a combined phase one, phase two trial of a nucleic acid vaccine against a close relative. So no matter what it is, we should be able to run a combined phase one, phase two trial of a newly developed nucleic acid vaccine. And mRNA vaccines famously can be developed within 48 hours, now within 24 hours. So that means we could have advance approval for a combined phase one, phase two clinical trial of a nucleic acid vaccine developed in the 10 days previously. So I think of this as a one ten hundred k plan. One day to the whole genome, and then within 10 days, 100,000 nucleic acid vaccines and 100,000 diagnostic tests delivered into the relevant community with a pre-approval for ring vaccination to try to keep the thing contained. That would be our best chance of preventing that epidemic from becoming a pandemic. And it would require the exactly the same skills and people who now are trying to figure out which natural viruses are pandemic capable. I would much rather have them doing this. Because even if you find a natural pandemic capable virus and 
shout to the high heavens about it. Speaking from experience, you're going to struggle to get governments to actually cough up any money to do anything about it. And even if they did, you can't run phase two clinical trials of your vaccine against a virus that has never infected a human and might never do so, especially because that means it's of unknown lethality. And the whole reason you're doing this is you think it might cause a pandemic. So there's a significant accident risk. But more to the point, that trial needs a control group, which means you're infecting a control group with a virus of unknown lethality. That's just not going to happen. In other words, you cannot run phase two clinical trials until the thing spills over anyway. And so if you already have approval to run a combined phase one, phase two of a nucleic acid vaccine, you save the time required to design the nucleic acid vaccine and manufacture the first few thousand doses, which is probably measured in days. It's just not a great advantage. So I would much rather they focus on something like the one ten hundred k plan because so much of that is community-focused, figure out where, where the hot spots are and give them the training and, and the equipment. And prevent them before it ends up spreading. Yeah. Yep. But against something deliberate, no. It's just not going to be fast enough. Um, so COVID obviously was a big problem, um, but it was not an existential level threat. What would an existential level pandemic kind of look like and how what would be kind of the warning signs of something like that? I mean, as I said earlier, Omicron with 70% lethality would be a pretty good civilizational threat. Yeah. So we call that the wildfire scenario, just something that is scary enough that essential workers are going to look at that and think, mm, I'm not going to go to work. doesn't matter how many N95 masks you give me. Yeah. No, thank you. And have to look at that and say, yep, even though now my family is starving, I really can't blame them for that. That's, that's the kind of scenario that I'm afraid of. Then there's also the, well, what if all of us have already been infected by something that has a very long incubation period like HIV before it has clinical consequences that are pretty horrible? <clears throat> so that's the subtle scenario. Um, and with this... Uh, delay detect to fund. I know it was it was through Geneva. Was there? I'm guessing that has some kind of connection with like uh, the Geneva Convention and and that group, or is it something that was coincidental? Uh, no, it's just I'm a polymath fellow with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, oh. and I already have a lot of ties with the U.S. policy defense establishment on these issues and brief them fairly regularly. But it's a global threat, and so I thought releasing it through a through a European um, security org would be plausibly better off for encouraging other countries to do something about this as well. Right. Um, in terms of existential threats, we've talked a lot about the biological weapons, but there are some other ones that people have, have discussed. Yes. I know nuclear has come up a couple of times when we've discussed why nuclear is maybe a little bit more well-controlled, but every once in a while you hear AI come up. Mm -hmm. um, you hear global warming come up too every once in a while. Some some people say it's too slow. Some people say it's too fast. Um, but uh, I'm curious what you think, other than biology, are some of the more uh, worrisome existential risks. Well, I'm as worried about AI as the next person and probably more so. Okay. But it's true that I am particularly worried about all of the capabilities that the run-up to transformative AI is likely to make widely accessible. Not limited to bio, but right. other things, including, I mean, some folks are worried about 
geoengineering attempts. If you install a global thermostat, who gets to have their hands on the thermostat and who could plausibly dial it all the way up in ways that could be, or down in ways that would be hard to reverse? Is that something that we could worry about? I've looked at a lot of them and spoken with folks like David Keith who are more familiar with them on a technical level. And it doesn't look like that many of them are particularly concerning in that way. Most of them are reversible and could be and even and are resilient to sabotage. That is, even if we become dependent on solar radiation management, for example, it would be pretty trivial to build enough planes to deliver a new batch, even if someone sabotaged the entire existing fleet, for example. So you wouldn't have a sudden sharp um, resumption of warming after mitigation. And AI, though, A lot of it depends on how soon and how fast. And I don't know. I'm not really qualified. I've spoken with a lot of folks. I've spoken with, you know, Ajay Akotra and Paul Cristiano and Jade Leung and a bunch of relevant folks in this area who study it. And the, the timelines are concerning. And it's as someone who specializes in evolution, a lot of the problems are related in terms of alignment. And we always have a saying that you get what you select for, which is not necessarily what you want. And you translate that to AI and it becomes pretty terrifying. Right. Yeah. I mean, as, as fast as the biotech space is moving, the AI space is moving even faster. Uh, it's, it's hard even just to keep up with a lot of the things that are happening now. Um, and what people, I guess where it comes down to is what people are selecting for to have it do. Um, that can be nerve wracking sometimes, uh, but can also be exciting. Oh, it's tremendously exciting. And it also potentially offers a way out of it. That is <clears throat> on my, on my more pessimistic days, I wonder, are we wise enough to even get a handle on the kinds of immensely destructive technologies that, we're likely to see over the next 10 to 30 years, not just in bio. There's lots of ways of breaking things at large scale, and some of them might be accessible. Bio seems unusual in how accessible it is, but there are certainly others. That's not the only one we need to worry about. And if you think about a world where a lot of people have access to the red button, and if anyone ever pushes it, that's it, curtains for everyone. Humanity is not a species that I would say is likely to persist for a long time, given that scenario. I mean, we were mentioning movies in Hollywood earlier. It's like in The Dark Knight, where the, the oh, two okay. different fairies and each of them has the button that blows up the other fairy and it's all set up. Of course, one of them is full of prisoners to maximize distrust between the two and so forth. But you will note that there was never at one time, there was only one button on each fairy. Because presumably, they knew that if there were 50 buttons on each ferry, it would be a foregone conclusion. Someone would have pushed it. And of course, in the movie, there's struggles over the button and so forth for maximum drama. But in reality, if enough people get access to a red button, someone's going to push it for some reason because mental illness, ideology, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of reasons why someone might decide that's it. We're going to push the button. So are there technologies out there that will 
give red buttons to a large fraction of people. Seems not unlikely to me. Will transformative AI give us access to those technologies? Seems pretty likely to me. Yeah. So I'm pretty worried about even the run-up to transformative AI before the point where we've created truly super intelligent machines that are superior to humans in many different domains. Never mind questions of agency on the part of AI, never mind questions of what they're intended to do. A safe and neutral and seemingly universally supported thing would be to build an AGI that is the equivalent of a human scientist. But looking at some of the spreads between the compute needed for training and the compute needed to actually run the system, at least last time I looked at Ajaya's report, it was something like 10 to the eighth was the difference. That is, if you are willing to continue with your training budget, as soon as you have finished training, you, have, you can run 10 to the eighth copies of the system. So if you're training a human equivalent scientist, AGI, it's hard to do once, but then it becomes democratized very quickly. Well, or whoever or whoever did it all of a sudden has a hundred million scientists. <laughs> that's another way to look at it. <laughs> and that's the minimum mm -hmm. estimate of that spread. It's right. a, there are higher ones. So obviously that's not going to be an immediate thing, but the way because precisely because science has been so incredibly successful at improving the lot of humanity writ large. In fact, I struggle to name a specific year when it, when technology was net negative for humanity. Depending on depends on, of course, when exactly you count technology as having been invented. But the like the closest is probably leaded gasoline. The triethyl lead scandal. Yep. Yeah, that was a wild one. But that same year was when the BCG tuberculosis vaccine debuted. So it's really hard to say even that year was net negative for humanity. And certainly all of the others were net positive in terms of overall contribution to human well-being. So the uncontroversial answer to what should we use all of this incredible power for is, well, let's discover awesome new technologies and understand how everything works, right? How could that ever possibly go wrong? Unless, of course, that necessarily will create a bunch of red buttons and then we asked all of our massive computing power to tell us how everything works without rather than telling us how to survive learning how everything works. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we will be lucky. And it turns out that there are defenses against all of those things. There are defenses in bio. I'm optimistic. Like mm -hmm. the whole point of delay detect a friend is this is a solvable problem. It's just that the solutions largely do not lie within biology, which is a hard pill for me to swallow. But it is what it is. It's possible that there are some problems that are not readily solvable at all. And we just, the safe route is just don't go there. Or have many different settlements light years apart. Or you name it. This is Zapian's <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Or I'm allowed to say things like that, right? Yeah. yeah, that's. But how much are we willing to gamble on all knowledge being sufficiently safe? that it's not going to create red buttons and disseminate them to the population and people who might press them. Seems a gamble to me, and it's a gamble I would rather not take. So that's where most of my pessimism comes from. I expect that there is an unacceptably large chance that an explosion of knowledge in the run-up to transformative AI 
will disseminate large numbers of red buttons. And we won't even necessarily reach the point where we're worried about agency of super intelligent beings that we've created and whether or not they're aligned with human values and whose values, because someone stressed about the transition is going to push a red button and that's it. So how do you decide who gets the red buttons? If you don't want to have it universally disseminated, how is it decided that this person is worthy of a red button because he's responsible? Well, that's actually what bothers me so much about many of my colleagues saying, oh, it's fine. Making viruses is actually really hard. When I did it in graduate school, it took me, you know, a number of months or years to manage to make this one. It's like, okay, so you're admitting that you can do it. And what you're effectively saying is that you should have access to pandemics. And everyone and your your friends should have access to pandemics. All of you deserve that red miniature red button. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just spent too long talking with people who tell me that I don't see the mental and spiritual aspects, and I'm just fundamentally blind to important areas of human being, well being, and and cognition. But I'm just not willing to go out on a limb and say people like me should have access to the red button. I'd rather that no one has access to the red button, if at all possible. I mean, if you go out and pull people on the street, bring it back to nuclear, how many people think that nuclear weapons were a good thing for the world? You can make a case in terms of averting great power war for a long time. They haven't flown yet. You can't say that 1945 was a net negative year because the amount of Americans' lives saved from from going through right. I mean, you get yeah. you, you, American and Japanese lives, lives. If you look right. at if you look at if you look at the relative operations and how many millions of people would have died in the invasion, you can make that case. But of course, if you know 1983 had all the nukes had flown, then you would not be able to make that case anymore. Right. Definitely not. And that's why most people say that we would be better off without any. Well, now in bio, we have more destructive things. Even the least pandemics can kill as many people as any single nuclear device. And they're much more accessible. So it really makes me uncomfortable when my colleagues say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Not that many people can do it. We can do it, but not many other people can. It's okay. Hand out the red buttons. We're trustworthy. Not sure I'm that trustworthy, and I certainly don't trust my other folks if I'm not sure I trust myself. Because accidents happen, right? I'm I'm not one to advocate for you know caution in virology research specifically because of the accident risk. But it's true that accidents happen. And people snap and people get converted to weird ideologies. And when the stakes are high enough, you just can't allow a tiny chance of utter catastrophe. And that's what we're talking about here. So how do we deal with the fact that technology is going to give an increasing number of people the ability to cause existential catastrophes? That's the challenge ahead of us. You ever get tired? You see, you see like so much of your time is spent worrying about all of these problems and Literally carrying the world on your shoulders. Do you ever just... Oh, no. I only have a small piece of the problem. (laughs) And what's more, I can't complain about it because I have the opportunity to make a difference, right? When it comes to finding meaning and fulfillment in in a world where people are seemingly feel adrift, 
when your job is to understand the technologies that could go out of control and do something about it, it's hard to get more meaningful than that. So also, I'm no longer particularly afraid of dying of old age. <laughs> One way or another. I'm not going to make it that far. Is that, the, is that the attitude? Well, judging by most common AI timelines, yeah, either something else is going to get me or we'll have or we'll technology fix to fix that one by then. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I will not claim that I'm psychologically healthy enough to uh, accept death, assuming that you accept that particular metaphysical interpretation of psychological health, which I'm not sure that I do to begin with. But, yeah, when you don't have to, when you have that off your shoulders and it's like, well, okay, there's always, there's always a bright side. And... It is kind of an, I mean, it is an overwhelming responsibility to be tasked with a tiny, 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 tiny piece of the problem, if only because I have the opportunity to do something about it. And this is the, I suppose, the hard thing to wrap one's head around is just that if you choose not to do something, you're still morally responsible for the consequences of whatever would ha will happen that you could have done something about and you didn't because you were worried about the side effects or whatever. You, be, you become morally responsible for the status quo as soon as you gain the power to intervene and choose not to. Of course, if you do intervene, you're morally responsible for all the consequences of your intervention. The point is, when they say with power comes responsibility, it's true. You're, you are morally on the hook either way as soon as you gain the opportunity for intervention. So by being here, I do have some opportunity for intervention. And so it is indeed on me, at least partially, for all of the consequences. But I've already had that on me for CRISPR-based gene drive for over a decade now, from my perspective. And it feels, it feels small relative to the kind of pandemics and civilization falling that we've been talking about. Although that would not necessarily be the end of humanity, which is also another important point. It's really hard to go from bio to the end of humanity because there's still uncontacted groups and so forth. They're not, humans would survive. Civilization would almost certainly rise again, probably under different circumstances. We can argue over, you know, who knows what it would be like culturally and morally and all that jazz. But yeah, if, If you're going to develop a technology or write an influential piece or whatever, the consequences are on you. And for me, I feel like I have to hold myself morally responsible for all the consequences of CRISPR-based gene drive. And that includes its failure to be used to accomplish as much good as it can. If there was some way that I could have introduced it differently, emphasized you know, community guidance and transparency more. Or maybe I did it too much and, and impeded development. Maybe I wasted too much time on talking about safeguards and got people up in arms and consequently things went slower than they could have been otherwise. It's hard to know where to walk the line, but it is certainly true that there's half a million children dying of malaria every year. That's not even my primary cause, right? You know, <laughs> target malaria is working on that one. Mm -hmm. But because... I introduced the technology that 
is likely to make it possible, it's my moral responsibility to talk about it in a way that maximizes the chances that it can do as much good as it can. And if I say the wrong thing and it sets it back by a year, a 1% chance of a decade-long delay is 25,000 dead kids, minimum. So I've already had that on me for a decade. <laughs> yeah, very so I guess light burden. you just sort of get used to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and... But it's also a weird way of thinking about it, I guess, or at least people have, many people have told me this, that you don't used to thinking about, well, if I say the wrong thing to a journalist, then, then the field could be set back and 25,000 dead kids could die because of that, because of a tiny chance of a 10 year setback. Although we know that the field of gene therapy was set back by at least 10 years by a single death in a clinical trial. So that's why I've been so paranoid about the possibility of an accidental release of a gene drive system, just because... Yeah, 1% chance of a delay like gene therapy suffered is 25,000 dead kids. It's a lot of dead kids to have on your moral conscience. <laughs> so, yeah, this is why I come across as kind of a zealot to many of my colleagues about, no, we are going to use safety. No, one method of safeguards is not enough. You have not done the math in your head. You have not, you have not hoisted the moral weights because you have not connected mathematics to morality in your head. You are not feeling it. Your mind has not made that connection. I'm not even sure my mind is really 25,000. It's so much, but most people have never even tried to think that way. I mean, we know all these studies about scope and sensitivity and the study of the birds and the tar. I would love to see many replicates of that for any social scientist listening, but it's just not the way that most people think. And so you have to train yourself to try to think that way. And then you have to figure out how to persuade people who haven't done that. That no, really, for this reason, we need to be extra, 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 extra careful here because it's a tiny chance of something going wrong, but the consequences are so great that we just can't afford it. You have to do the math. And this, I suppose, is my greatest frustration and hope that people so seldom actually put numbers down on the things. They don't actually write out, okay, what is my prior that this is going to happen? What is the magnitude and what is my uncertainty for all the relevant things? And then occasionally run, run it by people you trust to see, have them point out what you might be missing. If we did that more often with important issues, I think humanity would be much better off. So, I mean, you're, you're clearly a very philosophical thinker. Um, you have... Uh, you've thought a lot about kind of morality and your your own kind of moral responsibility to thing, and it, it sounds like other people's moral responsibilities as well. Do you have any kind of uh, set algorithm or some kind of set philosophy or code that you that you use to try and follow? It sounds very utilitarian. Well, from, from the outside, on big questions, yes, but you got to be very careful because, again. If you can't have consistency and completeness in mathematics, you probably can't have anything anywhere near that nice in morality either. And there are known flaws in basically every moral system humanity has ever come up with. So I suppose I don't put too much stock in any of them. And consequentialism is a particularly hazardous one to throw too much of your reasoning towards just because it assumes that you can, in fact, predict the future with some degree of reliability. 
And as much as I might bemoan folks not putting numbers on things and running those calculations when it's important, you can't do that on your day-to-day -day life. You're never going to do that in your day-to-day -day life. In terms of your relationships, you're not going to put numbers on the probability that, well, okay, maybe some neurodivergent folks do. But most humans just can't do that, do it that way. And there's a reason why other moral systems exist. And for most moral decisions, you're better off using any other system than consequentialism. <laughs> So me personally, I tend to default to virtue ethics, typically stoicism, like more on the Marcus Aurelius side than Seneca for my sort of day-to-day -day stuff. I confess, you know, contractualism is okay, but deontology has always rubbed me the wrong way because I just don't like, like, rules are so just, there's always exceptions to every rule and it just bothers me that people just put out the rules and like, okay, yeah, most of the time, but if there's no decision procedure for when you should question the rule, it just bothers me, and there never is. So I tend to default to character-driven virtue ethics. My, uh, the way I've always kind of looked at consequentialism is kind of like, you're right, that it's you have to assign all of these ridiculous probabilities, and it might not be super useful in, in everyday life, but I always kind of feel like, well, consequentialism is an answer, right? The problem isn't with the philosophy. The problem is, is that we're not good enough at science to be able to predict the future yet. Yes. Yeah. That's that's kind of how I've always looked at it. And I, I feel like sometimes they get watered down. So, oh, consequentialism and utilitarianism, they're, like they're, they're flawed because we don't have the these, we can't predict the future. We can't predict the consequences of all of our actions. And that's true. But that's not a problem with the philosophy. That's a problem with our ability to like do math and, and predict the future. Yeah, but I would still say that it would be hubristic of us to assume that any flavor of consequentialism is actually anything approximating morally correct, even if you're a moral realist. Well, isn't the whole point of, of morality in general is that you're kind of like, there is no correct answer, right? Or Only if you're a moral anti-realist. Okay. Moral realists would say there is, in fact, objectively truthful morality out there. And I would point to mathematics and again say, <laughs> Yeah, but even if there is, that doesn't mean you get to know it. <laughs> yeah, it's also kind of like that's we're we're deciding what morality is and doing it. That's why well, that's I, very... I, I separate this. I separate it that way. That's how I've kind of looked at it. I don't know. That's a kind of an anti-realist assumption in there. But um, I confess, I try not to put too much weight on either on either camp there. Let alone, and you know, yes, you get into like infinite ethics and population ethics and all sorts of things, and there's just ridiculous moral traps that you get into and seeming inconsistencies in, in all of the different theories that are bold enough to actually be specific enough that you actually can come up with inconsistencies and paradoxes. So again, it's I don't think we have come up with good answers, which is another reason why I might wish we had a bunch more time to sort of sit back and think about it and try to figure out what actually is good before we do things like try to program our under current, <laughs> current understanding into a super intelligence that it's going to remake a decent fraction of the universe. <clears throat> but on the other hand, if we continue on our current path of advancing technology, with the red buttons, maybe we need a super intelligence to say, no, actually, you're not ready for that one yet. So we might not have a perfect idea of what good and evil are, but we do have an idea that there is this thing called suffering mm -hmm. uh, and that we tend to want to avoid it, at mm -hmm. least on some level. Maybe it's it's just the robot chasing the line. But uh, do you have uh, some kind of definition of suffering that you use? Because this has always been a sticky point for a lot of people that I've known, including myself. 
Oh, I mean, I mean, the nice thing about, say, light and sound is that you can actually put numbers on them, whereas suffering negative valence, negative emotional valence of experience in leading to strong lasting aversion over time a lot of it depends on you know do is there such a does suffering require chronic pain or is just straight out a aversive response sufficient to cause suffering so like do you know do ants suffer but ants don't as far as we can tell feel any chronic pain they can feel acru acute pain you know an ant that breaks a leg and so forth will obviously respond by initiating an alarm response and dancing around and taking evasive action in case it was a predator that snipped off its leg or something like that. But then once that alarm response settles, it will go back to doing what it was doing before and it will not particularly favor that leg. It will any more than, like, it doesn't show signs of pain when it touches it. And it's not going to make any particular effort to favor it so that it will get better because ants don't really do that. So there's some point where chronic pain seems to become a thing where organisms will favor an injury. And it takes a certain level of complexity and point in phylogeny before that appears. So I guess a key question is, is that a reasonable place to draw the line where there is suffering on one side and there isn't on the other? Or not? If you don't draw the line there, then you're down to perhaps saying multicellular versus single-celled. But if you're willing to say that, say, a bacterium undergoing an aversive response due to chemotaxis and detection of some harmful compound, if that is pain or let alone suffering, then you really open the door. To right. Then you, then you have a whole bunch of problems. And how do you weigh the positives against the negatives? How do you weigh euphoria, joy? Against the suffering, I personally think very strongly that you can. It's not kind of bleak otherwise, but more to the point, I very much feel like life is worth living. But how you stack those up is always going to seem morally problematic because we haven't worked out a moral theory that is halfway decent at that yet either. So, and one of the, I mean, to your point earlier about how often we just don't know enough, I think this is really what it comes down to. We right. have a lot of scientific uncertainty about the nature of pain right. and suffering and aversive responses and emotional valence and so on, especially in animals. So to the question of is nature net morally positive or negative as judged exclusively by the moral valence of experiences of the organisms that constitute it. I don't know. Could go either way. Like you can make arguments that case-selected species tend to get all, most of the evolutionary rewards. Most of them do. Most because most of them necessarily get to eat and reproduce. Whereas our selected species, the bulk of them that are born never get to eat or reproduce because there are selected species and create a ton of offspring, most of which are messily devoured before they get to do anything nice. So you can say, okay, case-selected species probably have better experiences on average than our selected species, and there's 
But there's an awful lot of our selected species there, so how good are the good experiences or the bad experiences? That's the argument that gives you to a, on individual yeah. pain suffering grounds, and nature yeah, no. may well be net negative, but I don't know if that's actually true. What do I know about nature of the yeah. experiences of basically alien beings? I'm not even sure about the experiences of other humans. So, and it would be pretty arrogant to say that that's all that is morally relevant either. Maybe it, maybe it is, and maybe we're just delusional about other things mattering. But then you get into questions of, of identity in the informational sense. That is, if you, certainly once you get into digital binds, if you run an experience twice, is it twice as morally relevant? Or is it no more morally relevant because it already happened? Mm -hmm. That exact informational pattern played out. And how many pro different processors run that same thing? It's no more morally relevant. Or is it some integration over time that causes it to be relevant because it's happened twice over two different timestamps? That's, that's another but one. But computationally, in terms of the information being processed, it's actually the same. That is, it's the same. You can think of it as the same thing has happened. Are you saying at, at, at the same timestamp, or are you saying at I'm saying that time, time is actually not relevant to that particular information processing step. Time is just okay. a, a particular dimension like any other. Okay. And so, yes, you know, the event happened at a different spatial coordinates as well, but the time is no more relevant than the space would be my assertion there. Yeah. And so this gets to the, you know, now you're into theodicy and, and the like, like, is, should God create multiple copies of heaven? If heaven is perfect, why shouldn't God create infinite copies of heaven? But if they're all the same, if it's all just like the same thing running on endless repeat, maybe that's not morally relevant. Maybe God has made every perfect world or maybe God is all perfect worlds. And then I'm not actually religious, although my, my wife is, but I do find it hilarious that the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics inspired a pastor <laughs> a few years ago to solve the problem of evil, which is, which explicitly says, okay, God is actually bound by the, by informational distinctness. And it is not in fact morally relevant to run the exact same informational pattern program twice. Therefore God can't, God can only make so many copies of heaven. So God has already made all per permutations of, of, of every perfect reality. And then in order to do create more than that, God had to introduce imperfection, evil, in order to be informationally distinct and therefore be morally relevant. And so God made all of the universes with a very tiny bit of evil and then all of the ones with two tiny bits of evil and three and four and all the way out to ours, which apparently is still net good. And who knows how far out, further out, out it would go, but an omnipotent, omnibenevolent being would in fact do that given that particular constraint. You can say that that's a violent violation of your omnipotent clause, but I'm probably willing to go with it. I've, I've never heard that before. That's actually, that's really amazing uh, that you could set up each of the, in order to get informational distinctness, you would have to introduce evil to provide for, for more good. That's, that's a interesting interpretation. Um, so yeah, so that gets yeah. to your question of measuring suffering. Cause I know we, we posited a God that has, that is omniscient and therefore yeah has knowledge of, of everything of and everything and of their good of the evil. perfect consequentialist. And therefore, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so what would a perfect consequentialist do? Well, presumably that this. made every, <laughs> well, given the omnipotence, yeah. you would, you would make every, you would take every action necessary in order to 
maximize the number of good experiences there are, even if it requires causing little bits of evil. But there's no normalization in there, so that bothers me a little bit too. Yeah, that's another complexity. I think I think Darwin said something that uh, he couldn't imagine that evolution was true because then uh, nature would be stuck in this horrible moral deficit. Something along those lines. I don't remember exactly the quote. Well, he's he said he, he would struggle to imagine a benevolent creator making the ichneumonidae, given or something like given the nature of the ichneumonidae, which are these parasitic wasps that lay their lay their eggs in the body of their chosen prey species, and then the lar- and then the egg hatches, and the larva gradually devours its host from the inside, and yeah. then metamorphoses into a wasp. It's actually very like screwworm, just for on the insect level. He didn't know about screwworm, actually. If he did, I think it would have been even a greater challenge to his uh, faith in the existence of a benevolent creator. But no, he's, but he said, you know, in the, the existence of the ichneumonidae or the way that a manner that a cat toys with its prey. Those were the things that made him question whether God could be truly benevolent. So, uh, Stepping away from the abstract and more yes. into like our everyday life. So um, you said before that uh, you're doing a couple of different experiments to try and limit um, suffering with animals. Uh, mm-hmm. And I saw on your website also that there's there's some kind of experiment going on to try and um, alter uh, testing animals as well to limit the amount of, of pain they experience. Um, and so I wanted to ask a little bit more about that because that's not something I've, I've heard a lot about. So is that does so okay? There's there's only all right due to uh, regulatory gaps. We don't actually know exactly how many laboratory rodents are used every year, mm-hmm. but we're confident that it's in the hundreds of millions, and probably the low hundreds of millions, mm-hmm. which means that it is again dwarfed by wild animals, and it's in fact almost certainly dwarfed by wild by both wild rodents and by rodents raised in feeder farms to feed to things like zoo animals, pet snakes, things like that. So it's actually less important to improve the well-being of the laboratory animals than it is to improve the well-being of those others, which are extremely neglected, both of them. So again, we want to get rid of the rodenticides that cause so much suffering from the wild organisms just by essentially limiting reproduction. Also, the social dynamics of a rat colony change dramatically when you have low versus high population density. Right. So this is the, the classic not, rat utopia experiment. That's so it's not just about the preventing them from dying horribly of <laughs> second generation <laughs> uh, <laughs> super warfarins. It's also about the fact that rats in a low density colony just have way better social lives. But there's also all these feeder rodents and in general, if you want to do something interesting with biotech, you try it on mice first. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting genetic changes that one could make, one can make, and we have made in rodents, is you knock out fatty acid amine hydrolase, FAH, which controls levels of um, of some of the endogenous endocannabinoids that in effect, are a dial on well-being. So obviously THC modulates this pathway, but we're talking just the native ones that make you feel pretty good. 
FAH NOx is the um, <clears throat> catabolizes these different things, so it reduces their levels. So you knock it out, and you get about a 10x increase. In humans who have impairments in both copies of the gene, they score at the absolute bottom on every anxiety test, and they're less sensitive to pain, and they tend to be very happy and optimistic people who say that they haven't really had serious suffering or care in their lives, and they generally love being alive, and they love helping others, and they have lots of patience with others, and they're generally lovely and wonderful people. In rats, in rats and mice, it's really hard to tell this, but at least in mice, they are much braver. They're much lower, they score lower on all of the mouse anxiety tests. They're much more willing to go out into the open, even though they're at risk of predation and so forth. They're less afraid of bright lights, and they're just more adventurous across the board. But given that we know that in humans this seems to improve well-being, it would be interesting to contemplate a project to ensure that all feeder mice are FAH knockouts. Now you can't do this in wild mice because it would completely destroy their evolutionary. Hugely deleterious. But in feeder mice in captivity, who cares if they're, you know, less afraid and suffer and suffer less pain and so forth. Why, why not? So one of the things we're interested in for other reasons is just how do you engineer animals to be immune to existing pathogens and viruses? And that we expect is a fitness advantage. If you can do widespread antipathogen immunity, which means then we have to worry about the things escaping and having that trait spread in the wild. Right. It would not spread as fast as a gene drive, but even so, um, principle of the thing demands that you don't accidentally spread things that will right. go exponential in the wild, no matter how slowly, no matter how comparatively benevolently. Well, wouldn't wouldn't it also because it would be evolutionarily disadvantageous? Wouldn't the even if it was in a gene drive, wouldn't a lot of those mice become eliminated anyway just because of predation? The gene drive is probably more powerful. Okay. But eventually, it would break, and then you would it would return to normal. In the long run, natural selection has the last word. Um, barring extinction. It can't bring things back from extinction, of course. Although if there is an empty ecological niche, it may or may not be filled. Yeah. So in the case of the screw, when you get rid of them, there's not other examples of primary myiasis in the old world. So, And there's no reason to think that the niche doesn't exist there, but it's empty there. Therefore, you can imagine you buy at least several million years of empty niche. Um, but getting back to the rodent's point, and, and the escape, we, we're interested in coupling these two. That is, if making them pathogen resistant, but doing so in a way that knocks out FAH. And that's a dual purpose. It's a safeguard against the fitness advantage of pathogen resistance getting out. Because if it was coupled to loss of FAH, then that would be a fitness penalty that would probably outweigh, we assume, the antipathogen resistance. And then it's also just a nice thing that then we could offer because Pathogen resistance is useful to rodent farmers. Right. And, and probably useful to prevent the future pandemics. And coupled with reduced rodent suffering, yeah. what's not to like comparatively? And if it works, of course, then you can say, well, what about farm animals? That was, what about that other was things? my next what question. About, what about yeah. humans, too? 
I mean, sure, if you if you you would it would be a choice. I mean, do you want to get rid of your anxiety and potentially become less productive? It's or probably hard to do in existing people. You wouldn't be able to do like I don't know some kind of you can target it with you can target it with inhibitors, but gene editing we're limited by delivery, so you can only edit a fraction of any given being's cells. Okay. So you could edit the next generation because you like flood it with AAV. <laughs> you can try that and you yeah. can get a decent yeah. fraction of them, but not all of them. You can get yeah. more than 10% of a mouse's cells, but you, mice are a lot smaller than people and that's a lot yeah. of AAV. So, yeah, but with farm animals, in principle, you could. And more philosophically, I mean, this is an area where we're doing enough things and don't have a ton of attention to devote to this one. But... A lot of people want to get rid of factory farming for many excellent reasons and move towards clean, lab-grown meat. And that would certainly be a better world and that would eliminate all of this suffering and you return it to zero on the well-being scale. But it's kind of a waste of several hundred billion nervous systems. That is, wouldn't it be better to engineer all of those animals to live utterly blissful, euphoric lives and then get eaten? Wouldn't they rather have existed even knowing that they're going to be eaten? I mean, we all know that we're going to wither away and die yeah. and we're still glad that we existed. Well, if it was a matter of you can exist and then you're going to wither away and be eaten by an inscrutable alien god... Would you still rather be alive? I think most of us probably say yes, <laughs> even though we know at the end of the day we're going to get eaten by an inscrutable alien god. How is an inscrutable alien god all that different from withering away and ceasing to exist at the end of the day? So perhaps it would be, especially if you posit that, I mean, evolution has no particular incentive to optimize for well-being. In fact, if I, there was a genie and I got wishes, that would be one of mine, just to have evolution favor well-being as perfectly coupled to replication. But since evolution doesn't optimize for it, that suggests that there's a lot of room for engineering to improve matters. So if you look at, say, just mu opioid receptors, primary pleasure circuit, they have a couple of things built in for tolerance and habituation. But you can break those. We know how. I mean, evolution built them in because if you do a great thing and you bask in the blissful joy, but then you keep on basking in blissful joy rather than getting up and moving on in the never-ending quest to pass on your genes. Yeah. Yeah. You can get out-competed by someone who's a little more on the ball. Right. And so evolution favors tolerance and habituation of mu opioid receptors. But we can break those. In principle, if well-being is a, of a typical naturally evolved animal is a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, we could plug plausibly engineer an organism with plus 50 or plus 500 maybe. And shouldn't we then do that to all of our, the animals that we're then planning on eating so that we can give yeah. them these amazing lives? Yeah. But as soon as they're around, you're now taking away that 500 that you've just engineered. You've just engineered this perfectly happy animal. And <clears> the next <throat> thing that you're going to do is eat it. That's yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. Admittedly. And this is where population ethics gets yeah. weird, but that's right. also the sort of right. thing that then yeah. leads consequentialists to say, well, yes, but this is why we have to tile the universe with computronium simulating <laughs> orgasmic beings all the time, <laughs> which, okay, that is one interpretation, but I would hesitate to that's, that's actually my set that in motion. Honestly. Well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's mine. Yeah. 
To be fair, the other moral systems haven't really thought that far ahead <laughs> as to what we should do, but <clears throat> there are worse ones. And of course, you can argue, well, every, every year we delay restricts the size of the light cone that we have to yeah. tile the universe, universe with, with computronium. Computronium, yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> Granted. But <clears throat> that's fine. But we, we, could, we could be wrong. And once you send off the fleets of unknown replicators to do that, then it's hard to take it back. So, <laughs> in fact, it's definitionally impossible to take it back. <laughs> so I, I told Joe Paradiso that the Borg were the good guys because that's what they were going out to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We will, we will not get into my problems with uh, the inconsistencies in Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Star Trek's me. better than most. <laughs> Although it, I, I do always marvel whenever you know, my wife insists that most of her moral, moral framework was built by watching Star Trek. And so, you know, we're showing it to our, to our kids. And I do marvel at how like, their physics is far and away, you know, their pretend yeah. physics is far and away better than anything we can possibly do. But our biotech is so unbelievably superior to anything that they have in any of the track. <laughs> yeah. And somewhat scarily, our AI is better too. I mean, yeah, that's a, so here's, other than like data and the doctor, when you think like the ship's AI, yeah. we're better. So here's a, here's a crazy story for you. There was this old, uh, there's this video game that I played. And one of the, the plot points of the game was that you were getting led through the game through this through this character who had created this magnificent robot. And uh, one of them, uh, he had a partner. His partner used the robot to predict the outcomes of baseball games and, and whatnot. But this guy, his wife had died. And he wanted to talk to his wife again. So he fed it information of his wife and then had his wife talk to him. So I used ChatGTP to do that with Rod Serling, who made the Twilight Zone, and it sounded just like Rod Serling. I reproduced his voice, I reproduced his image. And so it's here. Like, here's this, when I was in high school, I played this game. I said, wow, that's that's really crazy. That's a moving story. That's this amazing sci-fi thing that's so far in the future. And we can do it now. Like, it took me an afternoon to put that together. Which yeah. Is unbelievable. Yeah. One of the things that makes me worried is that the push to make tools like that open source. Yeah. Again, with the assumption that democratization is always good. And now again, I'm not saying that it's good. <laughs> it's something that only people like us should have. Right. Not at all. I'm just saying that perhaps some of those capabilities that it affords, no one should have access to. But agreeing on that is going to be very difficult. It's much easier to just say, oh, no, everyone should have access or no one should have access. The notion of constrained access for everyone is, yeah. But even just Google search is somewhat worrisome. I mean, you can imagine when it comes to instructions for building red buttons, as soon as someone describes it and then someone else going look, goes looking for it, Google's going to make it a lot easier for them to find it. Right. And if you take the chatbots and you have them ingest large quantities of the internet, then they might be much better able to successfully identify red button instructions from all of that noise. Right. 
maybe maybe not, but if they're going to be useful at all, they're going to be selected for capabilities that such that that ability will be within distribution for them. But it is not. But dealing with red button scenarios is not, shall we say, the primary motivator. Even of folks who are concerned about existential risk, tend to worry more about what the successors of these systems will do, rather than what they themselves could enable. Just LLMs when it comes to identifying and sharing extreme hazards involving current technologies that otherwise might have gone unnoticed for many more years. Um, so I'd like to close up with uh, some of the, the kind of moonshot ideas that we that have been alluded to a little bit here. Um, and that I've, I've talked to you, I talked to you a little bit about years ago when I first met you. Um, the first one that I, I wanted to ask about was something that you brought up earlier. Um, was uh, basically imagine if every person in their generation was immune to all of the diseases of your parents. So were you kind of saying that we are close to a level or at a level that we could have inoculation of people through these CRISPR therapies? No. No. <clears throat> okay. No. I might give you a different answer in 10 years or even five years. Okay. Right now, no. No. Okay. Would I, is it unreasonable to expect us to acquire the capability of engineering a new organism such that it is highly resistant to every known pathogen afflicting its species? That seems pretty plausible to me. I expect we will have that capability within, say, a decade-ish. Which means that, yes, we could, in principle, decide to do that to the next generation of humans. And to be fair, this is sort of an interesting ethical debate, because how different am I from a version of me, counterfactual version of me, that had been engineered with this capability? I've suffered from a lot more illnesses, but otherwise it's hard to imagine that I would be that different, such that I'm sufficiently isomorphic to that individual that I would, that had my parents had the opportunity to make him instead of me, and I could have been him instead of me, I think I'd be a little bit miffed at my parents for not doing that if they had the option. Because you're not changing anything else. You're not changing relative capability, economics, competitiveness, you know, all the things that the Unabomber worried about, how we would, you know, warp our destiny and defile our human dignity by engineering our offspring to according to the dictates of the market. Here it's like, no, actually, let's just be like, let's set all that aside and just say, how about just straight up immunity to all standard human disease? Yes, no. Infectious disease may well be possible. And that will be an interesting dilemma for us once we could, in fact, consider doing it. I think the, the bigger concern is kind of the, the Gattaca scenario or something like that. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not sure that immunity to disease is provokes the Gattaca scenario. Well, it would more all be the like, other capabilities will. Well, no, no. Even <laughs> even uh, like prevention of disease, like why would I hire someone who's going to have sick days? It's an advantage, but it's yeah. not an overwhelming yeah. advantage relative to the distribution of ability as in performance as is. Yeah, it's a fairly a small thing, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other one that you mentioned a couple of times is extending lifespan. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of interesting work going on. I've had some people talking about it. There, you have cellular rejuvenation. You have the NAD plus boosters. You have a, a million different ways of people looking at it. What's what's your take on it? 
the single most compelling result is the mouse peristalsis studies, where you just hook up an old and a young animal's circulatory systems, and lo and behold, the young animal ages faster and the old one ages slower. And the infusions of youthful plasma into old animals do this as well. That's, that shows that dramatic life extension is possible, and we need to just figure out what in heck is it exactly. But it might not be one thing, it might just be Turns out when all of your proteins are folding correctly, <laughs> things work much better. And so you dilute faulty systems in just, yeah, functional plasma where all the proteins are, are working, but that is enough. Still somehow it, you know, it spreads through the whole systems of the mouse, all different organ systems, including those away, you know, nothing's that far away from the circulatory system, which is probably why it works, but it's not just the circulatory system that the effects extend to. So that suggests that there are ways of doing it that are better than straight up calorie restriction. Also, who wants to do calorie restriction anyway? I mean, some people do, but like, no, I thank do. you. <laughs> I do intermittent fasting, yeah. mind you, because that's, that's sort of the way to still get to eat things you want and not be starving all the time. But yeah. The other one that's promising recently is the number of the Yamanaka factors just in AAVs and just pump them into a mouse as many as you can get. And in elderly mice, increase the you know remaining lifespan by more than 100%. That was pretty impressive. Not so sure about the cancer risk, but if you only do it when you're already old, heck yeah, seems great. More extreme versions, it's hard to say. But I think we can buy quite a lot with that. The truly extreme version is uh, something I'm always surprised that other people haven't been working on. Although not that surprising, just because the obvious answer is one that has two obvious technical hurdles and a heck of a lot of moral complications and ensures that people who are not a consequentialist will dislike you. Okay. So I, I think of this as the sort of obvious mad scientist's way of pursuing extended health and youth. And it, on consequentialist grounds, there's nothing wrong with it. By most other moral frameworks, it looks hideously wrong. But the idea is you need a new body. You need a new clone body. But we've all seen lots of science fiction shows. Obviously, it is horrifically morally wrong to clone yourself and then do a head transplant with your clone. So bluntly, the ethical way forward for a more consequentialist standpoint is in the cloning process, you inactivate a gene required for prefrontal cortex development such that your clone grows up without a critical portion of the brain for cognition. And so it will just never ever going to be anybody home. It really is just an empty body. And then you can go ahead and do it. The risky part is the head transplant successful part. And the fact that what are you going to do about the spinal cord connection? But you, then you don't just get, you know, a new limb, you get an entire new body and that will rejuvenate the brain based on the peristalsis example by quite a lot, or at least as much as you're going to feasibly get. Um, for quite a long time. But you do need some form of answer to surrogacy. It's going to be super resource intensive because raising a clone to 
large enough. And then it's going to be, then the ethically squishy part, even for consequentialists, is what are you going to be practicing all those head transplants on your surgeons? And I presume the answer is apes or monkeys of some sort, which obviously is ethically questionable. But those have been done, actually. Yeah, people yeah. have tried. Yeah. I certainly haven't gotten good at enough. That no, I would, no, no, no. I would risk it myself, no, no. but, yeah. you know, but in principle, that is solvable as well through the same trick. Right. Just make monkeys that don't have minds. There's nobody home. Mm -hmm. And then try to do head transplants. This is, if you accept the moral legitimacy of creating beings that can't suffer right. and don't have any cognition right. to any appreciable extent, then you can do this. But in order to scale it, you need artificial wombs. That introduces societal complications, although I still tend to think that that would be a net positive as well. Yeah. But as it would not directly affect me, not I'll certainly abstain from that one. And then you do need to get reprogramming down right. And there are <coughs> there are some existential risks to getting human cloning working really well. <laughs> Namely, if you have a if you have a dictator who can self-cooperate but otherwise struggles, and also longevity as well can potentially cause problems because the whole point of a dictatorship is that, I mean, the advantage of democracy over dictatorship, the number one most powerful one, is that sooner or later even a benevolent, competent dictator is going to die. And then you have the succession problem and then things get much worse because benevolent dictators are very rare historically. So in principle, you could end up extending the lives of all dictators, most of whom are not benevolent. And if they could also rely on clones of themselves and put clones of themselves in different positions that then have an, an extra incentive for self-cooperation, you could end up with a potentially stable tyranny. It seems a little bit far-fetched in the rate of given advances in technology in other areas in terms of things but not to worry about. But not impossible. But that's why we're here. <laughs> not impossible, especially given the, if there would, I think it would probably require some partial or reasonably complete crash where that technology or the seeds of it, knowledge of how to do it were, record, were recorded such that, that our successors could then do it again. That's how you would end up in that sort of scenario. I do think most of us probably don't put high enough odds on, high enough probability mass on a partial collapse. What do you mean by a partial collapse? Partial civilizational partial collapse. collapse yeah. Like a lot of people die. We regress technologically to some some number of years, like I mean, a, a new quite a few age. decades. Yeah. Nuclear exchange is one way, although it's – think about a fall in nuclear exchange is it's really not going to do a heck of a lot to the southern hemisphere, which is why all those billionaires buy property in New Zealand, right? I didn't know that. <laughs> Although Australia is actually an even better bet in terms of keeping things intact just because they have, like New Zealand, it turns out, does not even have any means whatsoever of refining fossil fuels. None. They used to, but now they don't. They closed their last refinery, which means they are 100% dependent on the outside world because even for internal distribution, they still rely on fossil fuels for too much stuff and they can't get any on their own at all. So if the rest of the world fell apart, New Zealand would too, even though they grow like 20x as much food as they need for their population and so forth. Also a great cultural base, like, yeah, having that Maori influence on the basic Western cultural template is a hugely positive influence in my biased opinion from having spent there and getting to spend a lot of time talking with the Maori. 
Um, so if, you know, if you had to vote a society for restarting as your base <laughs> cultural template, actually Aotearoa would be pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> but they need to build a bloody oil refinery. <laughs> Otherwise, we're otherwise we were with the Aussies, but yeah. So nuclear exchange wouldn't obviously take out um, the southern hemisphere, but it almost certainly would cause several decades of regression and then coming back. And so that's certainly a scenario where some of those technologies could be a thing that would impact the outcome. Okay, great. Um, is there anything else that I didn't ask you about, but I should ask you about? <laughs> I think this one thing I would like to delve into a little bit more is this question of humility and hubris. Okay. I mean, I've, I frequently invoke humility as something that we should aspire towards. And this is because as it, as I admitted, I'm a self-described virtue ethicist, but I think you probably haven't quite challenged me enough given that I talk about humility and yet a lot of the things I'm discussing are, don't Quite necessarily issues, come across yeah. as, as humble to people. Mm. Okay. So I kind of feel like you should probably challenge me a little bit more okay. on that. Well, one, one kind of inconsistency that I noticed that you were talking about is you were saying that, uh, I mean, you have this large amount of, of research that you're doing that involves either virology or, or gene editing and things like that. Uh, and then you simultaneously said that I don't trust myself to have the button. Yep. But by... Being a professor at MIT Media Lab and at the Wies Institute, I'm you're, not at the Wies Institute. You're not at the Wies Institute. No, I don't have no affiliation with the Wies. I, I was a, I was a technology oh, development okay. fellow at the Wies when okay. I developed CRISPR-based gene drive yeah. and all that jazz. Okay, but I but I have been solely at MIT since 2016. Okay, yeah. When I had I had Don Ingber on, and he spoke very highly of you. Oh, Don is great. Yeah, yeah. no, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I I work with folks at the Wies all the time, yeah. but I'm not technically affiliated with them anymore. Okay. Yeah. Um, but. Anyway, by being this MIT researcher and, and professor, mm -hmm. you are grabbing onto this button and you have a hold of this button uh, and you could retire or you could give it up, but you, you aren't. Well, actually, I do everything I can to ensure that I don't see the button, that I don't have the ability to grasp the button that I do glimpse. Okay. And I think that's the only safe way to deal with it, that if you are in a position where you think you might see the button... <clears throat> you should establish a network of folks who you trust, morally speaking, to run key decisions by that are relevant to glimpsing or grasping the button to ensure that you do not, in fact, have access to the button yourself and that ideally no one else will either. So you're saying that each, everyone has a piece of the button? If necessary. I mean, this is why we do, you know, yeah, Shamir secret sharing and cryptography. Like, if you want to do a distributed oblivious computation, it's kind of important for that. Right. So that way you avoid the unilateralist curse. No one person can do it. It requires persuading a certain number of people, each of whom has a vital piece in order to do it. And so now that's not always possible to arrange in the real world. But by well, the most obvious way is if you if you 
say enough about, if you talk enough about this sort of stuff, and you can probably assume, or at least I would hope, that a competent intelligence community will keep an eye on what it is that you're doing and ordering. And I have certainly advised many people to keep a very close eye on anyone who has capabilities that might actually lead to the button, such that if they order anything that suggests that they're assembling the components for it, then that will be immediately obvious. Now, <clears throat> I differ from some of my colleagues who share my overall impression of sufficiently competent biotech equals infinite pandemics and worse, in that right now I think it is actually a terrible idea to train people how to think with a security mindset in the life sciences, just because I think that the, we are more likely to discover and disseminate red buttons if we teach people to recognize red buttons. Okay. And that, and, and others say, oh, well, you need to teach each other to keep a lookout so we can all watch each other. I agree that that is a better strategy once we know of the existence of red buttons that any one of us could grab. But I think we can buy several additional years in which right now there are no really credible candidate viruses that would cause pandemics that anyone can assemble and let go today. And I would like to keep it that way for as long as possible. Ultimately, we will fail in the long run. You just, that's why I call it delay, detect, defend, right. because you can never hope for more than delay. Eventually, we're going to get that capability. But I think we can buy a, more time by refraining from teaching people to look for red buttons, and then we can switch strategies when we've already lost and someone has already said, hey, I'm really worried about this thing. You see, if you take this thing and this thing and this thing and you put them all together, then you could do this. And I think that would be really bad. How should we defend against this? And the answer was, there is no near-term way to defend against this. So the defense was trying to keep people like you from doing what you just did. Obviously, we're trying to build other defenses. That's what the PPE and that's what the 222 and all so forth are, but those are not ready yet. And so I think we can buy more time by keeping people from doing that. Because right now, the norms do favor public disclosure. And I think this is in part because in life sciences, like it would never, it would never happen in like even computer science, cybersecurity is too strong of an influence. Like it's just known that you just don't tell the world about an exploit. That's just not yeah. the thing to do. The norms is you need to inform the people who can patch it and you need to, you know, good practice is you give them three months at least. And in bio, we just assume that you tell the whole world as soon as possible, never mind whether or not a patch is even theoretically possible. And I think that's because in the life sciences, we're so used to playing against nature, we just haven't really thought about how much harder it is when there is an intelligent adversary. So to get back to your original point, I think humility is in entrusting the power to others. It is ceding control over some of your actions to others such that they will monitor what you are doing and ensure that you are not seizing the button for yourself. And this is also useful when it comes to avoiding unilateralist curse scenarios. That is, if you're concerned about red buttons and the discovery and dissemination thereof, how do you know that you're not accidentally going to 
contribute a key piece of one to the world. Several of my past projects. In retrospect, perhaps that was not the greatest idea. <laughs> you know, so even though <clears throat> I censor what my lab does pretty carefully in terms of there's a lot of projects where we've just been like, nope, we're not going to be the ones to do that. I fully recognize that someone else is going to do it, but accelerating that by some number of months or years is just too risky, and so we're not going to do that. But even with that, there's a few where it's kind of like, mm, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And so that's why, again, it involves finding a group of trusted other folks with different perspectives and actually abiding by what they say. And this, I think, ties it all back together. The whole point of that community guidance stuff was establishing norms in a new scientific field dealing with exponential biology, whereby you don't even begin to develop the technology without running it by the kind of people who are likely to be affected and have different perspectives from you and listening to them regarding whether and how you should go about it, if at all. And I think if we had that as a norm, we would be in a much better position as a field to deal with the kinds of hazards that we're going to face in future. As it happens, I don't think, you know, I think that's actually worked pretty well in the field of gene drive. We're moving in that direction, but it's not going to be fast enough to deal with all the hazards coming out in other areas of the life sciences. So we're not going to get that kind of widespread norm change that I had hoped, which is a tragedy because it would actually have accelerated beneficial science by quite a lot. I mean, the general notion of that you should keep your best ideas and experiments to yourself until the story is basically done and you can claim all the credit because otherwise someone else is going to throw more money and hands at the problem. That's terrible. Yeah, that's, that's not how anyone rational would set up a system for optimal discovery. So like all of our incentives are artifacts, culturally evolved artifacts from back when the best way to tell other scientists of your findings was to scratch out a message on paper with a fountain pen and send it by horseback and sail power to your <laughs> colleagues in other places. That's just not how we should be doing things. And so changing the incentives governing science to favor earlier stage openness almost certainly would be better. And it might help eventually in terms of spotting red buttons early enough to avoid even disclosing them in the first place. Maybe, but it certainly would accelerate beneficial science. And so I think it's unfortunate that we haven't managed to spread better incentives. Aren't those two things contradicting in that you don't want everything to be open source because you're afraid of generating the, these, these problems, but at the same time, you think everything should be open source in order to accelerate science? Not quite open source per se. Okay. I, what I want is for people to have to disclose their ideas to other people who are not quite like them before they pursue those ideas and make them real. Okay. So that is not the same thing as publicly disclosing the whole thing. Okay. So what is the bar for someone different? Because what if I just like go down the hall and knock on Steve's door and then me and Steve are buds. So he's like, okay, that's fine. I mean, that's better than just you. Okay. Even if Steve's in the same field in the same lab, that's still better than just you. Okay. But it's even better if Steve's from a very different field. Okay. Bonus points if Steve's from that bizarre species of person known as a social sciences okay. or humanities, you know, I hear, I hear they co-occupy this university okay. with us somewhere. Yeah. I've, I've seen them around every <laughs> once in a while, scuttling through the halls. So if Steve is one of them, then that, then you'll probably get some actually very different ideas about whether or not this is, this is good or bad. Um, but 
honestly, I'll just take a number of different people, um, especially those who are likely to be affected by the technology in question. So, I mean, in my own personal experience, knowing, knowing myself, I know that if I had an idea that I thought was really good and I went down and knocked on Steve's door and Steve is a social scientist and he thought it was a bad idea, I would probably get mad and I would say, Steve doesn't understand this idea. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I'd go and do it anyway. Yeah. How, how do you want to propose preventing something like that? I don't think there really is a way. But, you know, maybe 10% of the time you might actually listen to Steve or maybe even <laughs> at least further down the line when you once you've had time to think about it more. You think, well, Steve is clearly wrong, but did have a couple of good points. And that might change how you go about it that could end up making a difference. So it's still certainly better even if you do decide that Steve is, doesn't know anything and mostly ignore him. It's still better that you did that. How is this different than working outside of a lab group? When you're running your ideas by some, by a group of similarly trained specialists who are specifically selected for their ability to hyper-focus on one given area of science in order to push it out as far as possible and actively discouraged from engaging in other areas, That is not, shall we say, the group that I would expect to be particularly skilled at anticipating the broader consequences on our world system. Okay. So is this kind of like an approval board? And then who decides who's on the approval board? This is this is the cascade that I'm kind of worried about that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, well, in terms again, in terms of formalizing it. With respect to, so first of all, the reason why we set this, why I'm trying to set this up for gene drive and other ecological engineering type stuff is that it's an area where things can go wrong, but I already determined that there's no obvious red buttons in there. I looked. And so it seems to be a reasonably safe area, but it's one with some pretty profound implications for the way that people live and the environment and a lot of things that people are really concerned about. And so... There the idea was you want feedback from people who actually live in that relevant environment and can come up with plausible things that might go wrong that otherwise you might not hear about. Because lay citizens have in fact come up with things that we hadn't thought might occur and laid out those concerns. And some of them may actually change the way the Mice Against Ticks project proceeds, depending on which exact technical route it's very relevant to one of them. And so if it ends up going down that path, then that could very well change how the release plan goes based on what a woman said in a town hall meeting. So it is very much the case that in some disciplines, random folk at a town hall meeting can know more than you. I think this is probably less true in say nuclear physics. Cambridge is a weird city. Yeah. You, you may well end up with someone at a town hall meeting in Cambridge or the Museum of Science or something yeah. like that who can usefully say something about nuclear physics. But that's probably because they're a nuclear physicist, <laughs> not that they're a random person off the street. But so it's, it's mostly relevant for ecological stuff and sociological stuff and so forth where that don't require a ton of detailed yeah. technical expertise to understand. But there is also some moral legitimacy aspect to it. And there is some worldview diversification. You just want people very different from you. And this is in part why we reached out to the Maori because the Mataranga Maori, the traditional knowledge, has been validated by 
modern ecologists on a number of occasions. Maori knowledge holders predicted that certain things would happen due to certain relationships that were ultimately proven to be 100% correct. So there, but it's also, it took a really long time to figure that out. It's really hard to translate across these knowledge systems. So one of the better things that they're doing there is the New Zealand EPA has sort of separate evaluation processes by which they have a PhD ecologist and then they have a Mataranga practitioner. Okay. And they just sort of write parallel reports nice. yeah. on the relevant issue, which makes a lot of sense when you have that sort of culturally acquired knowledge over a long period of time. It's very orthogonal to the way that we do things in the reductionist perspective. It's much more holistic. And, and so it's sort of harder to tease out for that reason. But it clearly is very accurate in some occasions. Now, we don't, we've lost most of that here. But still, there's something to be said for people who just spend a lot of time outdoors in terms of noticing a relationship that we might not have thought of that, you know, our, even our, you know, Sam Telford is our ecologist, epidemiologist on the project. He's been working on Nantucket, studying Lyme disease for 30 years. There are folks who have spent more time outdoors on Nantucket than he has living there, and we really want to hear from them. And especially if they don't necessarily have the scientific mindset, because that means that they place that means they look at things differently and are more likely to see things that we might miss. So, I mean, to me, this is the real value of diversity. It's that you are likely to develop a better picture of the way that the world works if you invite diverse perspectives on a given set of information from many different angles. And consequently, you're more likely to make better predictions yourself about the consequences of one action or another and consequently can make wiser decisions. So it's primarily about the search of wisdom, I suppose, cultivating wisdom through ecological and, and cultural engineering. You could say that's in a way what we do. And the reason my group is called Sculpting Evolution is, yeah, we use a lot of directed evolution and robotics and so forth in the laboratory to evolve new protein tools and the like. And yeah, we're interested in you know using gene drive and other similar systems that reshape ecologies, but at the end of the day, sculpting evolution refers to sculpting the evolution of technology. I think that's a great way to end. So thank you very much, Kevin. This is great. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Lloyd. Yeah.